Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Undrafted, a Dynasty Game Theory podcast brought to you by the Undroppables. I am your host, Scott Belanger, a.k.a. Jax Falcone. You can find me on Twitter, at Dino Game Theory. This is episode 34. Let's roll. What a, what a time. We're a week away from the NFL Draft. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're not excited about the NFL Draft, boy, you've entered the wrong room. Uh, th- this is definitely a room for degenerates and, and draft junkies and and fantasy football junkies, and <clears throat> excuse me, and, and 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 all sorts of all sorts of you guys. And my guest is already applauding me and clapping in the background because he knows he's found the right spot. He knows he's in the right room, and uh, he he uh, he's got his own zip code in fantasy football uh, Twitter and in, in the fantasy football landscape. Uh, his rookie scouting portfolio is literally known. Uh, by by just the initials RSP, everybody knows it. Uh, today on the show, I have the great Matt Waldman. Matt, talk to me, brother. Oh man, this is fun. I'm glad that we're getting a chance to do this. I was actually just slapping the top of my arm, seeing if we could just inject this into my veins. Tonight. Oh, good. Yeah, good. a heroin reference right off the top. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's late. Let's have some fun, right? So there we go. I mean, it's going to get late if we keep doing this, but. I absolutely love it. You know, um, you know, I've kind of known about you for a while and, you know, I've increasingly gotten to know your style and, um, you know, I've, I've listened to a couple of podcasts and your hit, you know, your history of, of, of some pretty bold calls. And, you know, I, I think it's really great, but, you know, before we kind of get into all that, cause I think we'll touch on it a little bit and I really want to hear your takes on a lot of these prospects because you're kind of the perfect person to have on, in my opinion, before the draft, I, I talked to a few film analysts very early in the in the in the season, or you know, January, February, before you know, well, this year no combine, but before the combine, before the athletic testing, you know, before a lot of the analytics starts to get put together and understood. And I like to kind of know the landscape of college football and who was good, who wasn't. And I'm not a huge college football fan, so I, I love that. But right here today, you know, a week before the draft. I couldn't be talking to a better person. 
I'd love for you to just explain a little bit and, and, you know, you can do so briefly or long winded, however the hell you please, damn it. But um, tell us a little bit about your process and how you kind of go about um, evaluating these prospects. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a strange journey that I've had to get to what I'm doing because I basically was a director of call centers, um, you know, in terms of like quality and operations, I did work in that range. And I learned all these best practices for how to evaluate performance. You know, I did, you kind of have to wear a lot of hats in that industry. Um, And in addition to the fact, and have some thick skin, because, you know, people are going to call you and tell you that they hope your mother gets cancer and they hope you die a horrible death. So, you know, you kind of have to learn those types of skills. But at the same time, this is one of those situations where the the process that I use is based on best practices, you know, first borrowed from the manufacturing industry and then geared towards industry that I was in. And what it is, is about taking something that's very subjective, like studying film and figuring out ways to ask questions so that if you were to scale your, your process of evaluation, that everyone would be on the same page or the individual who's evaluating it, which is me, I do all the work is always looking at it the same way because, you know, you could have a hamburger one day and maybe get an upset stomach and see something differently than what you should, or you're not keeping track of all this different criteria that you have to have to study these different positions. And you might weigh things in ways differently from one player to the next. So what I do is I define everything that I look at in writing in terms of having criteria that's well-defined And if I start to come across things as I've watched on film over the 16 years that I've done this, that, you know what, what I'm watching here doesn't answer the question, yes or no. I want everything to be answered yes or no, because I want to have a clear criteria point that is something that I can track, A or B, yes or no, you know, one or zero. And then I give it a weight and I, I, I assign the weight, you know, the, the weights are pre-assigned for each of these criteria points. And, and then that adds up to a specific grade. And so over the years, I literally wrote down everything that I used to watch. I mean, like an insane person, literally just like played like this, like insane version of I spy, like everything that I saw from how the player moved, what they did pre-snap, how, what the coverages looked like, you know, all these things, even if I didn't know what the coverage was, I'd say, well, there's three safeties working across the top. The one on the right hash moved down five yards. I mean, like literally talked about that or the defensive tackle. The only things I didn't write was like the defensive tackle scratched his ass and then, you know, and then put it to his nose. You know, I mean, like that's the kind of thing that I, you know, this is probably the only thing I didn't do. But like I would look through that stuff and then I would adjust, you know, over the this process is about being able to adjust itself on a matter of going, okay, here's things that I'm not looking for. That I need to understand about route running. Here's the things I need to understand about releases. Here's the thing I need to understand about a quarter, uh, a quarterback's footwork because I wasn't be able to answer the question yes or no. So I take you through my checklist process that kind of compares with players, you know, how they're weighted at specific areas of criteria. You know, they're all in subgroups of, you know, whether it's vision or elusiveness or t- um power or balance and so i have a database filled with all of this information and how they've how they've graded out with each of these things and i give you a final grade it's an intuitive zero to 100 grade um and it's based on these answers to the test you know answers to these questions Mm -hmm. and and i've revised this over 16 years because i you know obviously i had a lot more to learn about 
football over that time. But the important part of that is this, is when you look at the NFL, the NFL's grading system is still rooted back in like the Blesto combine service of the 1960s, where it's zero through seven or zero through nine, but no one gets a nine, no one gets a zero. Um, it's like your evaluation in a corporation, you know, and on top of that, it's something where you don't even know what constitutes a nine, an eight, a seven, or a six, or a five. You don't, there's nothing defined about that. So when teams are grading, it's fine that people have different opinions about a player, but it's not fine that if you have two different scouts and they define how a player runs routes and you should have the same way they should be looking at routes. And one's like, I didn't understand that this was a good break. And the other one does understand it's a good break or someone doesn't understand how a player should um, attack an outside zone versus another guy who, who does understand that. And the fact that you have those different variants of skill levels because your evaluation system is part of your training. You know, it's part of what you should be looking for. If you're not getting trained well, like I asked Matt Williamson when he was a Browns, after he was a Brown scout, who's worked with, you know, ESPN and a number of different sites, and he does Dynasty Blueprint. They're a great podcast as well. Yes, sir. And he's like, how'd you get the job? And he's like, I took a test. Did they tell you how you did? No. Okay. I did, I did well enough because I got in. Well, any training after that? No. Well, did they give you any recommendations if you didn't know something what to do? So, yeah, 10 position meetings if I wanted to. Well, how, how much are you working, you know, when you're not attending these meetings? 100 hours, 115 hours a week, sometimes crazy hours like that. So you really don't have time. So, like, the point I'm making is that the NFL in its own scouting process has all this variation that's unhealthy variation. So yeah, what, absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is reduce the variation within my own study of players. So at least that every time I look at a player, you know where I'm at. Every three to four years, I've had different iterations of it, maybe three to five. And I tend to wait a year or two before I implement some of that stuff like publicly because I want to see how a couple of classes play itself out um, <clears throat> and go from there. So the RSP takes you through that. I'm grading for breadth of talent and depth of talent. Breadth of talent is like a resume. How much can you do if we were to ask you what the wide receiver position could possibly constitute? And then the depth of talent is how well do you do specific things? And because I have literally like, same with wide receivers, I really have like nine, over a hundred points that I grade that are defined um, for each checklist that I do on a player. And then I study probably, you know, eight to 10 games on most of the top, on um, most of the players that are considered top players, you know, and then I'll at least watch four to five games of other players, unless I just can't get access to their tape. And right. then at that point, I may get, I'll have one to two and I'll tell you, I didn't have access to this guy's tape. I only saw two games, you know? Right. And, and, there are and, guys like that for sure. Yeah. You see all the work, you see how it's defined. You could do it yourself if you wanted to take the time and be insane like me. So that's how, that's that the long version of my process. There you go. Well, um, you know, I think that's great. And I think what that tells me is that, you know, you're probably more analytical than a lot of analytics guys, because at the end of the day, what you're doing is trying to adapt uh, and apply analytics to film watching, which I've always said is kind of the only way to do it. Because if you're just, you know, watching guys going, that guy's good, man. He, he's, a, he's good. Well, then that's a dumb process. You know, that doesn't yeah. have anything that you, no, no, nothing measurable, nothing repeatable, nothing is really 
there's no there there, so to speak. And so, you know, obviously the people who are able to, to put some weight to it, it's super helpful because for me, I don't have time to watch all these games. I don't have the ability to do that. I need someone to really tell me what they're seeing. And, and, and I will watch some uh, film, but I also will rely on some film watchers, some analytics people to help me, you know, figure out what I'm trying to figure out, which is who the hell is going to be good and who should I draft on my fantasy team. And, and, uh, you know, I, I am analytics based, but I'm not, uh, an analytics guy. I'm, <clears throat> I just sort of use that as my, as my foundation and kind of go from there. And so using something like what you're, what you're doing to supplement makes perfect sense. And, and, and that's why I, that's why I love it. So that, well, that is such a great answer. I appreciate it. And one of the things is, I mean, I use the analytics as part of my, as part of my process. Now I'm a little bit more loose with some of how I look at criteria, say for instance, with combine metrics, I'll use combine metrics into my criteria because with depth of talent, I use that and I'll say, okay, the, I, my depth of talent are things like um, star level tier, um, starter level tier, committee reserve and free agent tier. And that's how these players are tiers. And there's definitions for each of those tiers. Like they have to exhibit these types of technical skills, these types of conceptual skills, and then these types of baselines for their athletic ability. Now, I have a broader range for athletic ability than maybe some analytics folks do publicly. But that, you know, part of that comes from my experience and what I view as maybe more or less important for a guy to be at least at minimum a contributor. Um, and then some of that's come from feedback from guys because. I've gotten feedback from analytics people in the league. One of my customers since 2007 contacted me in, in uh, 2011 for the first time and said, listen, I was a scout in the league for four different teams, and now I have a direct line to GMs who I've worked as an analytics guy for several years for over 25 teams. This is what I do. He did a lot of work with RAS scores, did a lot of work with a number of things. And it's funny because there's people in the industry I know who know him in one capacity, but they don't know him in another. So they, some people think he's with a team as a, as you know, they thought he was a scout. Some people thought he was purely an analytics guy. Some people thought he was like something different. And he, and he wrote me, it was like five years into this. And he said, listen, I've been getting your book since 2007. He said, but you know, your scouting's on the way, like your scouting's getting there and there, and you and there's some good things you're doing here, but I'm not ever going to compare you to a 40 year veteran in the scouting trade at this point. You've got a lot to learn that way. He goes, but your process is light years ahead of what the NFL is doing because you're combining these things. And he started showing me <clears throat> different things that I could do that were just like probably low hanging fruit that right. were helpful, but like, to this day, as analytically oriented as he is, and now he works in a different sphere that I don't want to get into because I don't want to give him away, but he's he's a guy that's like, listen, he's like, at the end of the day, there's still an intuitive element about football, and there's still a part of football where it comes down to the film. But if you can eliminate that to some degree, eliminate certain amounts of it so that you're, you're not getting too emotionally biased about a player, the better off you are. And that's part of where the analytics come in. Well, speaking of analytics, you know, I think your, your RSP, your rookie scouting portfolio, I think it's going to be replaced with a different RSP, and that's rock, scissor, paper, because of the <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles today are, you know, uh, asking guys to play rock, scissors, paper. And I, I just think that that's bastardizing your product, and I'd just be careful. I think it's going to take the place because that's obviously the process that works. Just rock, scissor, paper. If the guy can't win, 
get the hell out of here. It didn't mean enough to him. It's, uh, he's, he's a bust. Hey, in honor of that today, I've been wearing my Eagles hat. As you can see, I've got my Eagles hat on right now um, just for that. And I'm not an Eagles fan, but I had to wear it today after the rock, paper, scissors. Thing. Seems like a perfect time for me to shout out my producer, Michael Duncan, who, by the way, saved this podcast today because my dumbass started it without recording it. <laughs> and it took him like two seconds to be like, uh, is this recording, dummy? And I said, uh, nope, thank you. Uh, so he's awesome in, in every single way because he's he's there for us. But I got I to gotta do one other little shout out for Michael and, and kind of tell the people what's going on. So a week from today, we're going to be doing uh, – it's going to be the NFL draft. And we are going to be doing at the Undroppables a full draft-a-thon. It's going to be outstanding. So if you're – sick and tired of hearing you know the idiots on the national broadcast talk about um you know the uh the the nfl draft we're going to be having a lot of fun we have a ton of guests in the industry obviously it's going to be a fantasy football show for the most part but there's going to be you know brad wire offensive line guy all sorts of people um you know sort of chiming in and and uh so michael's put that together in an unbelievable way scheduling time scheduling uh guests just you know the, the whole thing, man. Don Mega is doing video content for it. It's going to be an absolutely uh, amazing show, and it will be through no fault of my own. I, I I take no credit. I'm going to be on there talking this kind of bullshit. But other than that, you know, Michael did a great job. So I just want to give him a shout out and also tell you people to uh, to come check us out on, on draft night and actually Friday and Saturday as well. So uh, moving right along, though, I know you guys didn't tune in today to hear us talk about, you know, Matt's process and all that. You want to hear what the hell we both think about these prospects going into the draft. Uh, some of you are actually rookie drafting right now, which I think is fun, um, but it's definitely dangerous picking these running backs because they could get, you know, drafted to a spot where there's zero opportunity for years to come despite their talent, which is something that, you know, I always say lean wide receiver heavy uh, early on and, you know, wait for those landing spots to, to, to draft a running back uh, above their cost, unless they're elite guys like ETN or someone who's going to get drafted in the first round and, and, and kind of go from there. But speaking of these running backs, I, Matt, I want to talk about a few different players and, and, and we're both a little long winded. I'm going to warn the people here today, but um. We'll see how, how 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 succinct either of us can be today. But I want to start with Javante Williams. So, you know, um, you know, Javante is sort of a little bit of a late bloomer, played linebacker in high school, you know, sort of transitioned to the running back position. And and now he's, you know, he's kind of well respected across all, you know, across every, you know, all platforms. You know, the NFL loves him, analytics loves him, uh, film watchers love him. Um, you know, I, I love him. Uh, he hits a lot of boxes for me analytically and sort of what I tend to look for in a prospect. I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, is he a quote unquote, an elite prospect for you? Uh, you know, or, or, and where does he land? More, more importantly, where does this guy land in terms of past classes? Because you have a, like you said, a, a measurable way of looking at these guys where you can kind of tell me where he fits in for you. So I'd love to hear your opinion on Javante. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the best way that I'd start off is to say he's probably the safest running back pick in this class. Um, this is a guy that, and the, the name I'm going to give you isn't a sexy name, but it's Mark Ingram in, the, in terms of build, in terms of, you know, the speed, in terms of the, the quickness. But the way that he uses all of that is very intelligent. Mark Ingram was a very intelligent player who just got stuck in a committee with Kamara, but still at this, at this, on the same token, was a very productive fantasy player, um, even as he started to bloom in, in the NFL after that rough beginning. When you look at Williams, I love the way that he uses his pads. He has something that Jay Moyer and I have both kind of termed micro-movement, which is the ability to just make small moves where 
it, it's very the best backs do this where when defenders are coming at you you can alter the angle at the last moment to either avoid contact or initiate the contact yes and when you're initiating it first just think about that when you initiate first and you get the first hit you don't even have to be the bigger player yeah, forces do, uh, sp- acceleration times mass, right? So I mean, exactly. You're, yeah, you're moving your acceleration, your mass, and with acceleration, and you're you're creating more force. Exactly. Jamal Charles was great at it. He would hit defensive tackles, lowered his pad at the last second, and put the defender on the defensive, and then be able to make the second move off of that because he got the first hit. And that's exactly what Charles was good at. Javante Williams is very good at that as well. And in addition that he does have more size than Charles, he could actually break tackles on a greater basis um, just from defenders hitting him first. And you've got the promise in the receiving game and, in the, and as well as a pass as a pass protector. You know, he has a complete game in terms of what you're looking for. In terms of how I rated him, his grade is very similar to Jonathan Taylor's last year, who was my second overall back last year. So he's just above my threshold for a player that I think could start right away and be used right away in a system that is played, you know, I mean, regardless of, you know, what system it is, I think he could play in a gap scheme or a zone scheme. He'd be better in a zone to be honest, but you know, you put him on, you put him on a team that needs a running back. He should be the lead guy early on, or at least get an opportunity to work into that lead position by years. end. and that means to me that, He's probably one of the top 12 backs probably in the past three to five years that I've seen. You know, he, I was comping him to some players that I think uh, I was a little too, you know, ahead of myself with him early in the process, uh, analytically, by the way. And, and, and sometimes you try and get a little excited. I was kind of getting out in the Cam Akers, Nick Chubb area. And when I saw him test, he's not that type of player. And, and, you know, watching the film is very exciting because he's running guys over. He's accelerating out of contact, which I love, but he's not necessarily breaking away for big runs. You don't see that. You don't see him run away from everybody. So he doesn't have that long speed. And that shows up on film and it showed up in his testing. He's not slow, but he's just not faster than everybody else. He's, he ran a four, five, eight or four, five, seven or something like that as pro day. Call him a four, six player. Analytically, you know, if you look at his size, 5'10", 212, I think he weighed in at. If you look at his speed, if you look at his burst, if you look at the way he plays, I think my best comp for him now is Kareem Hunt. What do you think of that comp if you look at just sort of play style, contact balance, the way he plays, he can catch the football. Kareem Hunt's a pretty damn good uh, pass catcher. You know, I think he's a little smaller than – in other words – Kareem Hunt at 216 and Javante Williams at 212 are both kind of surprisingly low numbers. They both look and play bigger than that, if you will. So I, I think they're very similar players in that way. Curious what you think about that comp. I think it's a good comp. I think it's in a similar range as Ingram, to be honest with you. I agree. Just, now, Hunt's a little bit slippery, a little more yes. slippery than, than, than Ingram is. And I think that Ingram's better at setting up certain types of creases but Ingram's, but um, Hunt is better at squeezing through smaller creases. Um, so you, it's interesting to look at that. You can see it's fun to get into the nuance of two players like that and kind of split hairs with these guys. But I absolutely think that makes sense. Um, and you know, for Hunt, for a guy like Williams, yeah, I mean his ability, you know, the 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 great small crease runner is also from North Carolina, is Michael Carter. He's an absolutely yeah. stud at smaller creases. But Williams is the type of guy that understands who he is and how to play the game. 
And I think sometimes we get that gets lost when people get too excited about speed. And to right. me, I joke that I've written about this a lot, but my joke is that speed is the cleavage of like NFL evaluators, you know, amateur and and professional because sure. they see like, <laughs> especially for running backs, it's just like, you know, the guy can be like, you know, a four, five, eight or a four, six guy and be have incredible short area quickness, incredible, um, you know, 20 shuttle, like that first acceleration. And those things are more important, but you know, it's like for them, they're like, it's like someone going, well, who cares about the personality? Who cares about, you know, who cares about their, their professional ability to, to be responsible as a human being. I'm all about what that rack right there when it comes to, <laughs> you know, when it comes to 40 times. I think what I'm learning is, is I'm a breast man because I'm a speed guy. <laughs> Look, I, I think speed matters in a couple of different positions. I think tight end, you need to be, you need to be explosive and fast. If you're going to be a fantasy asset, like, right. you know, we, we talked a little bit pre-show about your tight end gradings and how you're like, you know, obviously I don't block, uh, rate these, high, you know, these blockers up top because, of course, you know, that's not what the people want. I, I get that. Like there may be a guy who's like, man, he's the best blocker ever. It's going to be a, you know, goal line tight end, uh, you know, the best one out there. He's going to get drafted in the fifth round, you know. But um, but no, I, I, I think for, you know, there was there was a play where Jonathan Taylor got to like 21 miles an hour and it was not on a breakaway run. It was from him getting to the sideline, trying to get the edge. And yeah. I think. I think that's something where, you know, it matters too. Like that's what Mark Ingram can't do. Mark Ingram is a better quote unquote running back than Jonathan Taylor, but he'll never be as good as Jonathan Taylor because Jonathan Taylor is physically gifted in a way that is just ridiculous. So he's able to even make a mistake and still overcome that. And if he does get a little free, he gone. So the big play is important in in, in fantasy football, but I agree with you when you're sort of, that's where I think I'd like to sort of mesh analytics and film because there are guys I I get into an argument probably almost two years ago I think it was with the Monty uh Montgomery uh you know draft and uh you know I said speed matters at the running back position and the person who was arguing with me said um you know uh are you so if a guy's fast he's going to be good I'm like I never said that like that, that that's that's ridiculous Right. I just said that if both guys are good, the faster guy is better because, yeah. you know, it's like better to be fast than slow as a running back. You're a running back. You have to run the fuck away. So, exactly. you know, you know, running is a pretty important facet. But I agree with you. It's not the most important thing. You're right. Um, <clears throat> you know, contact yeah. balance, you know, in a real NFL game like Emmett Smith, right, was one of the best running backs of all time. But he didn't jump off the page in that way. He was so nuanced and could just get make a, a two-yard loss into a four-yard gain. And you're like, oh, my God, he's so good. He just sort of moved his body, contorted, took on some contact, and fell forward. You're like, that was just a six-yard run. How the fuck did that happen? There was nothing there. So I get that. But I also see that, like, you know, if you're gone – like Jamal Charles, man, you know, when he was gone, it was game, it was 80 yards in the touchdown, baby. Yeah, and it's a, it's about baseline skills. Like right. if you, you just have to determine what your baseline is for each of these things. Yes. And then if the guy's faster, but can do everything else that the other one can do, of course, you're going to want the faster better. guys. Right. Now the corollary is this. And, and if you, you're new to my, my work, check out my article. What would Frank Gore do? Because mm. while people hate Frank Gore now because he's old and they wish you know, as a fantasy player, you'd wish he'd just get out of here. Yes. You know, it was great, but he was, He's fucking teaching tape. I mean, I've literally had people tell me, he's like, this is the guy that NFL running back coaches use as teaching tape. 
Right. And honestly, I bet he did more to teach Marlon Mack than anybody on that team. And the same thing with Kenyon Drake. And and probably if the running backs in, in, in New York were paying any attention, hopefully they were too. Because you look at Anthony McFarlane. He's a great example. I mean, all the metrics are beautiful in terms of like short area speed, short area quickness, all of that. But at the same time, you have to understand that he overreacts to things because he doesn't have the decision-making capability that he has to develop right now. Correct. He doesn't have the baseline vision. And on top of that, vision is tied to footwork. You have to – If the best thing that I can tell people about running back play is that understand – if you understand the blocking schemes, then you can understand what he's looking at and how his feet are reacting to it. And if his feet aren't reacting to it right, then you know he's not seen it well. Right. And when and there are there's something to be said about efficiency of footwork and people fall in love if the you know if the if the rack is if the rack is basically speed then the then somebody's back end is probably um, the footwork and the ability to make jump cuts like people lose their mind over jump yes. cuts which may be the most inefficient way of actually changing direction. When it's right. actually flipping the hips and using movement that takes the least amount of effort. Adrian, there's only one Adrian Peterson who can still live and die at like late in his thirties on jump cuts. But well, so, there's but, a, there's another part of that that you see sometimes, which yeah. is like, you know, if, if 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 the play is to go off tackle right, I'm just making this up, yeah. and the running back just goes to off tackle right, the linebacker's gonna be there. But if yeah. the if the running back sort of can use a hesitation, his eyes, his pad, and look, you know, at the at the A gap and hold that linebacker for a second and then move, you know, it's subtle. But if he does that, that linebacker may not be there off tackle for him. You know, That's he's right. gonna he's gonna That's... create the hole himself because you know a defensive tackle who's who's engaged with an offensive guard is gonna see him going there. He's just gonna move to the tackle. Whereas if he thinks he's gonna go inside, he's gonna help his guard get leverage on that right. defensive tackle and again create that hole. So there's more That's nuance right. to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, and so have... a lot of these guys don't see that and they can't do that. And that's but that also can be learned, right? It, to a degree, yes, and I can be. And but the thing is, is how hard are they going to work at it, and how well do they see things, mm-hmm. especially at that speed? So right. it's it's a tougher thing to learn, but it is teachable. It just takes Tevin Coleman's example, who need a little bit more time. <laughs> and then when you look at a guy like, um, you know, McFarland, what I show is that basically McFarland on one play, and I thought to myself in the same week, you know what? Let me look at Frank Gore and see what he would do. See if I can find a play similar. And it was literally the first play of the game in the same week that I watched McFarland against the Jaguars, Gore against the Chargers. Same situation, similar type of defense playing the situation, and totally different ways of how they handled it. And Gore gains 10, McFarland loses three. And yeah. it's like showing you like how these things work. So it's it's a blend. It's finding that right blend. And I think that's the hard part is like when is being able to say, where's the baseline for what constitutes a starter in terms of speed? And then when you're doing it at this level, where you're evaluating it's for a broad spectrum of offenses and defenses. I'm not working for the Browns and going, this is the type of back we need. And so these are the thresholds for the Cleveland Browns as opposed to these are the thresholds for the Houston Texans. I I got a question now. So we're we're rolling, we're rocking, this is fun as hell. But here's here's where I'm going with this because – the the guy in this draft that if you talk to the film guys, they have questions about whether or not he can do some of the things that I just mentioned, some of the things that you just mentioned, setting up blocks, 
using angles, all these things, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, playing through contact is Travis Etienne. Yet, if I look at Travis Etienne's profile, if I didn't know anything, if all I knew was the numbers, the size, I, I never watched a game ever. Travis Etienne is head and shoulders the, the RB1 in this draft. It's That's just a fact. Um, but I have some trepidation too because I'm not an idiot and I like to listen to people who know what the hell they're talking about. So I really would love to hear what you think about Travis Etienne and his transition to the NFL and whether or not you think it could bust out or whether or not you think it could be sort of a, and I'm not using Jamal Charles, but a, you know, uh, you know, a supernova type of player because he does have some of that skill to break it. So w- what are your thoughts here? What, what's the range of outcomes for him? Yeah, he has a little wider range of outcomes than some of the other top backs. But at the same time, we'll put it this way. Last year, I remember people, I heard see people on Twitter occasionally saying, oh, Etienne's staying? He has no right. reason to stay. And, I, and at that time, watching the film, I was like, oh, he's got plenty of reason to stay because – he at that time he had some issues where he leaned too much on his speed, too sure. much on his quickness, and and knew he could outrun people and bounce plays outside or cut back and not really press the hole as deeply as he should and stay disciplined to the run. But this past year, I thought he got better, and mm-hmm. I thought he really made strides of sticking to creases that he should stick to. He's and I like the ability that he has to hit smaller creases. He has that functional power you're looking for to run and bounce off certain indirect hits, to be able to pull through reaches and wraps. He does that pretty well. Um, and he's someone that, yeah, sometimes he takes angles that gets him tackled right away that maybe he could avoid or set up with a little more nuance. But it's like a lot of backs like Reggie Bush, Miles Sanders, um, you know, Jamal Charles early in his career. Yeah. Now, Jamal Charles in his career is an exceptional guy where I would say, Maybe let's say LaShawn McCoy. The other sure. guys I'll talk about, all those guys were like, I'm out, I can out athlete people, and then exactly. they had to learn. So when you look at Etienne, he's gotten better. He's the reason that there's a little bit wider variation with him is that he's the most likely back to maybe early in his career to to think, I've got to make a big play. Right. Or let me try and bounce some things outside. Let me try and be a little, let me try and take this outside too early and not take the, the short games. Because here's the thing that people forget about running backs, just like quarterback play. Sometimes you got to take, you got to manage the game and take the short pass. You got to check it down. And if you don't do the, take certain throws, defenses know you're not going to do it. So now they're not going to respect you in certain situations. The same thing with running backs. If they know you're not going to take the get the yard hard the hard yards and and take those things, then they're going to play their gaps differently. They're going to play things in a way where now they're a little looser, a little tighter, and they're not going to let they're not going to believe you when you're pressing a crease. They're not right. going to believe you when you do those types of things. So once, as long as he doesn't veer into, I've been drafted to make big plays, therefore I must make one every time I touch the ball then he'll be good right away. If he doesn't, it might take him a year, a year or half a year like Miles Sanders. Sure. And if he never figures it out, then he's C.J. Spiller, Lawrence Maroney. Let's let the cat out of the bag because I have my rankings up and I'm going to share my, my, my rankings with you. Uh, this is, you know, I, right now I have uh, Najee Harris and Travis Etienne at, uh, at 1A and 1B, for me anyway. Um, 
And, you know, Javante Williams now firmly in that uh, RB3 spot. Um, And then after that, it gets a little bit muddy. But I've liked uh, Trey Sermon kind of moving up. I've got him right now basically in a 4-5 dead heat with Kenny Gainwell and and, and Michael Carter, really. Uh, And then uh, Chuba Hubbard and Kylan Hill. Uh, So that's my top eight. Um, We'll get to my number nine ranked player later. But, you know, so I think your number one back will surprise some people. I don't know that everybody listening already knows. I'm sure at least 50% of them already know, and they're they're like waiting for it. But I'll let you tell – no, you know what? Screw that. I'm going to tell people. Matt Waldman has Trey Sermon as his number one overall running back, and I think a lot of people will be shocked by that. I I actually am not that. Um, I think there's probably some validity here. It's kind of a weak running back class anyway, but I think – we talked a little bit before the pod and some of this is based off of, again, what you kind of laid out at the very beginning, which is what he can do. What is, what, you know, what his film looks like. And, you know, obviously if he gets drafted in the fourth round or whatever, you'll move that around based on draft cap, et cetera. But at this particular point, share with me, especially, I'm really curious and tell the people why you have Trey Sermon there and what you're seeing, because he's an intriguing player for me. And I'd love to hear why you've got him there, man. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I love the question that the guy asked when you posted, you know, what kind of questions do you want? And he goes, <laughs> yeah. and I'll, I'll, I'll do the unedited version that he gave yeah. the edited version, but he said, what the fuck does he, where the fuck does Matt Waldman get off having Trey Sermon number one? <laughs> and it's, and, and it's, you know, and I joked, I said, this isn't my first rodeo. And right. it's true because I had Isaiah Crowell, an undrafted free agent ranked number one, um, several years ago. And when you look at that class, certainly there's three or four backs that may have been ahead of him in terms of yardage, but Isaiah Crowell acquitted himself recent, reasonably well for that class. He I, had Marshawn, I had Marshawn Lynch over Adrian Peterson, even though I was begging people to watch Adrian Peterson tape. Like I knew I, I rated Adrian Peterson as the generational back, the once yep. in a generation back, but Marshawn Lynch as a back overall might be a little better as an overall player. That's probably true around. too. Like this, this goes back to the thing where I talked about like Adrian Peterson has that speed thing that I'm talking about where it's yeah. like, yeah, that's why he was good. He wasn't a better technician than like Marshawn Lynch was, I mean, he, yeah. the, the run against New Orleans is like sort of the, the laboratory example of what the hell is possible when you're as good as Marshawn Lynch. And exactly. you know, it's fucking, exactly. it's, it's, it's poetry. And it's the same thing. It was the same thing a few years ago. I had Nick Chubb slightly ahead of Saquon Barkley. This this is just how it is when I look at back. So part of this is, is one, I, I pay attention to my own process. I don't look at what anybody else thinks, obviously, when we're talking about this. And then on top of it, when I watched Trey Sermon, what I saw from him at Oklahoma and Ohio State is a back who really understands the nuance of the position. He understands how to economically use his footwork. Now, he's capable of the jump cuts, but he also has what's called curvy linear movement, which is the ability to bend around obstacles at a high speed. And a lot of people dismiss this about running backs because, like, this is the danger of where, where you get more nuanced into analytics, and I really love this part. Like, Dalvin Cook is a great example of a curvy linear guy. His curvy linear movement is Dalvin. unbelievable. He's like a motorcycle taking hairpin turns around a defender. But a lot of people, when they were looking at the metrics, they were like, well, he doesn't fit because he doesn't, because his metrics don't fit what we look for in running backs. But what we have to do sometimes is understand how do the metrics translate to the field and do they fit in this circumstance? What do they do well? So, 
Listen, Dalvin Cook doesn't make jump cuts. He doesn't make those hard stop start jump cuts, but he can bend around people. So how do you, what do you use that that what is what measures hard cutting? Well, the three cone drill right. does that to an extent. And you know what? The vertical and the broad kind of do that a little bit too. So if he didn't have a great vertical, didn't have a great broad, I don't remember specifically, but I remember there were things about his metrics that people were like, they don't like. It was definitely it was definitely his agility score and and that yeah. is the uh, the the three cone and the shuttle yeah um, so and, yeah absolutely and so when you see sometimes you have to go are there compensatory factors like the player's style or certain things that they do well physically in other areas that can make up for like DK Metcalf the fact that he bends like a fifty year old man you know doesn't matter because he's got ultra violent hands that can put a man on his ass and he does and he's so quick with it. That a defender knows he can run by him, um, knows Metcalf can run by him, but he also knows that if I get too close, I'm going to be on my ass and he's going to run by me. So you have to like put all that together a little bit. So when you look at a guy like Sermon, he has that curvy linear movement. He breaks a lot of tackles. This is a guy, maybe not the way people grade tackles, but something I've instituted into the RSP recently is because I got sick of this yards after contact where you could slap a dude's thigh pad and he gets 60 yards after contact. To me, it's like, let's rate his agility for making that guy only be able to slap his thigh pad. And meanwhile, Nick Chubb may be only getting 10 yards after contact on a play, but it's because he bounced off a defensive tackle, hitting them literally in a place where most people would get ear hold, and dragging two linebackers for seven yards. You know, when you look at that, Sermon was a guy who broke, you know, bounced, I now measure hits, wraps, and reaches as three tiers of how you bounce off contact. And whether it's from a defensive lineman, whether it's from a linebacker or a defensive back. And for every run I watch of a player, I'm checking off what kind of tackle it was and who did the tackling so that I can measure that. And Trey Sermon and Javante Williams were among the two best, along with Najee Harris in a lot of areas. Um, Sermon was very good against hits. But what was fascinating is that Sermon also didn't have any hits from defensive linemen. And you might look at that at first and go, well, he played at Ohio State. They had this great offensive line. So, yes, he wasn't getting hit by defensive linemen. But Najee Harris had plenty, and Alabama has a great line. Trey Sermon, you know, um, Javante Williams and Michael um, Carter had a great line at North Carolina. When When I watch the tape, what you see is the context behind that is that Trey Sermon avoided a lot of contact behind the line of scrimmage compared to other guys. To the point that of the 10 games I tracked, and I watched more than that, but the 10 games I tracked, he didn't have a single hit from a lot from a defensive lineman. And when you watch him play, he understands how to avoid that stuff. He can make the dynamic moves with the cuts, but he can also bounce around people, bounce off um, contact. He's a better receiver than you would expect. He can run pretty much every scheme you're looking for from him. And when you look at his RAS score, also the agility plus you know, the agility plus the initial burst, it's pretty dang high, actually. It's like he's in the, I think he's in the top 10% in the past of over 2,500 players in the past um, five years. So that's pretty good. Absolutely. He he checks a lot of boxes for, for me. Um, it, I have some questions about him that, that mostly stem from like, you know, why he wasn't able to ever really be a bell cow at either either place, uh, whether it was Oklahoma or Ohio state, why did he transfer? Like, I don't know. I mean, uh, in other words, you know, you can tell me the story, but my point is, is 
is there something of a makeup issue where, you know, when the, when the lights are bright and the situation really presses him, is he going to be able to, to be an elite bell cow sort of leader of a backfield in the, in the NFL? I don't know, but certainly, you know, he was a high level recruit coming out, obviously went to Oklahoma. He had a pretty damn good freshman season, a pretty good sophomore season too. I mean, and, and then this past year, you know, at Michigan state, plays really well, 10 carries for, you know, 112. And then and then the next two games, I mean, first of all, against Northwestern, Northwestern was one of the best defenses in the country. I mean, they were they were really good. He goes 29 for 331. Like, that's a video game number. That doesn't even make any sense. 29 carries for 331 yards in just one game against a great defense. Uh, then against Clemson in another win, he goes 31 for 193. Like, that sort of stretch just sort of showed us that he he's he's you know he's definitely talented. There's just no question about that because you can't be not talented and do that. That's not possible. That doesn't that doesn't exist. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Ohio State doesn't play against Northwestern, and a a guy who's not good doesn't go for three thirty one. Never going to happen. So the dude's talented. I'm just you know his inconsistencies are my questions. But you're a hundred percent right. He's well upper percentile agility and an upper percentile uh, burst, which, you know, burst is one of those things where, that's you know, you, men- you mentioned it about Dalvin and, and I just, you know, and, and, and that's where sometimes the context comes in because Dalvin was my RB one in that class because he just was so productive, so consistent. And when you watch the, t- you know, watch the tape, he was just, he was gone every time. He was just so good. And, and, and when you bring it back to Trey Sermon, it's like, you see a lot of those same things. I'll buy into that, but why the hell couldn't he do it all the time? What, what was, you know, I mean, he's a damn senior, you know what I mean? It's like, where, where, I don't know. It's just, that's what, concerning to me. What, what, what I would answer is this, is that when you're in a big time program, you got to understand too, that there's a great back coming down the pike every year and teams often like to share split time unless sure. the guy disappoints. And so, you know, it's like it goes far as back as the days of the University of Miami where you had, you know, Edron James split in time with Najee Davenport. Right. Edron James might, before his injury, might have been the best back I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, like, great. you know, in, in many ways. And he was split in time with Najee Davenport at sure. Miami. Now, also with Clinton Portis. And then Clinton Portis was also split in time. And you have guys like Frank Gore and you have Willis McGahee McGahee or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. But the same thing at Georgia where you have, you know, you had back after back after back and Oklahoma had some really nice backs, you you know, during this time. And we're going to be talking about Kennedy Brooks next year. And if you're, and now the thing is, is you, people might take the narrative and say, well, well, he transferred. He left. Maybe he's not that type of leader metric we're looking for to be the belt. But here's the thing. These guys know now that if they're NFL talents, that the most important thing is can they show on a big stage what they can be? And if Trey Sermon knew that, like, all right, I've been splitting this time, but now they're bringing in this 2,000-yard rusher from a JUCO's program and Ramondre Stevenson, and now I'm, I'm going to be in a three-headed committee? Sure. Now – Ohio State needs a back, and I know that I'm as every bit as good as Master Teague, if not better, probably. I know that they need a back. I can go to Ohio State and probably compete for a national championship and be on that team and maybe get to play in some big games and show what I can do in big games. Why not do that? Because the NCAA is no longer – sometimes we believe that college metric of 
you know, rah, rah, get an education and, you know, everything's for the player and all that. But we all know, we all yeah. know when we really think about it, these guys know too. It's like, if I have a chance to be a pro, what's good for me now? Because if they're steering me out of my education anyway, you know, which sometimes they do at these schools, unfortunately, you know, if I'm not getting a chance to study something I want to do, I better make the most of what I want to do here as a football player. And I think that's what he did. So he went to Ohio State and blew the the numbers out of it when he got the chance to play. So for me, if anything, I'm looking at him. It's like Robert Edwards, you know, when Robert Edwards, you, you know. So I'm not as worried about that, but I get the idea. And it could turn out that way. You could be right, but it, 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 I like it's it. interesting. I like it. I like what you're saying. I like what you're bringing. I, I, you know, Trey Sermon, you know, I kind of tend to scout – like a little bit earlier. I, I Well, and here's the thing. He, it was possible that he was going to be a, a last year uh, prospect, you know? So yeah. I start to like, I'm going to start looking at the 2022 class. I already started making a little list and starting to figure it out. I'm not a Devi player, so I don't really, and I'm not a college fan, but I like to be ahead of the game. So I'll usually start to pull names and just kind of check, you know, check in here and there. And then somewhere around January again, I'll start diving in. And so anyway, that's my process. And, and so Trey Sermon was on my radar, you know, and I was like, uh, you know, he's good. And, and um, so, so it's not like, uh, yeah, you, it's really interesting the way you talk about, because he still had Kennedy Brooks to deal with, you know, this past year, if, if, you know, if he stayed and, and you're right, he outplayed Master Teague by quite a bit. He was a lot better than Master Teague. So, hey, moving right along and, and, and shout out to speaking of, you know, uh, you know, let's move the chains. Randall Kennedy, Terminator uh, of the Undroppables, my partner there, has been all over Trey Sermon uh, leading up to this process. And, you know, I think, you know, as, a, as at the Undroppables, he'll certainly be our RB4 heading into the draft, um, you know, consensus for sure. And depending upon landing spot, you know, he could come out and maybe move up. I mean, it's tell, possible. Tell it's Randall. Possible. Tell Randall that I've been on several shows where I've talked about Sermon and I've had people who also have connections with scouts tell me that scouts have told them that they think that Sermon could be the best back in three to four years out of this class. So they they are even thinking that too, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, and I think actually he'll be the fourth back taken uh, in the NFL draft too. Yeah, I, 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 I do so. agree with that. A lot of people are putting Gainwell or Michael Carter, who it sounds like you like a lot as well, but I just think it's going to be Trey Sermon. It's going to be, you know, because he profiles as a three-down player, yes. whereas the other guys don't. So, I mean, you, it's really hard to pick a, you know, a, 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 a you know, a, 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 a player that can't play on every down, you know, in, in the top two, two to three rounds. So I think, I think it's going to be Sermon fourth back off the board. I don't think there, I gotta be surprised if he breaks those top three, but landing spot could change. I mean, you know, you get, you know, everybody's sort of putting, you know, all these guys in like Atlanta, uh, Pittsburgh and Miami and the jets. Well, they can't, I mean, it's possible they could all four line up perfectly for those four teams, but it's more likely that they land, in some other spot where you're like, Oh shit. Oh, Javante yeah. is in Dallas. Not that he's going to Dallas, but you know what I mean? Where it's like, I, I know. Well, yeah. that's not good. You know? Yeah. So yeah, there could be a, there could be Sermon, a tough landing spot. Sermon to Pittsburgh or Atlanta is something that I've been kind of concerned too. Cause I think these teams understand too. It's like, all right, well we have other needs and we might be able to get a back that we feel we can get in the third or fourth round. And that's, that's the thing too. Like with my rankings, it's like, listen, he is Trey Sermon. Got the top grade? Yeah, absolutely. But to me, my grades are like this. I put them in tiers. Yeah. So it's so it's at the end of the day, you know, it's a, again, it's like the ice cream shot. What flavor do you want from the player and how do they fit your scheme? That's going to be important. So 
if Sermon's in the same tier as Najee Harris, Javante, uh, you know, Javante Williams and Travis Etienne, then at the end of the day, you look at that and go, okay, fine. What do I need? What type of player am I looking for? And also, what kind of value am I going to get as a fantasy player? Right. So I got I got a quick one before we move off Sermon, real quick. So my, my concern, too, with him is catching the football. Just real quick, you know, is he a positive or a negative grade catching the football out of the backfield? Positive. It's, it's quantity over quality when I study that particular aspect of play, and it's worked out for me that way. Good. All right, so there we go. So now you're going to hear, you know, so – there's always a, a deep cut and my wider, I mean, excuse me, my running back nine is a guy I'd love to really hear your opinion on because, you know, I, I've got to give some credit to Ray Garvin, who was like the first person that I, in my circle that I could even find that was sort of talking up Elijah Mitchell. Um, and, and truth be told, I didn't know he was talking up Elijah Mitchell, but I was digging deep, uh, you know, in January and I stumbled upon Elijah Mitchell and I asked Felix Sharp about Elijah Mitchell and he was listed at like 5'10", I think it was like 215 or 220. Unfortunately, he measured in at like 202 or 203, which is not really enough to be a bell cow back in the NFL. I mean, there's a couple of guys who've done it, but, you know, they're Christian McCaffrey. So unless this guy's fucking Christian McCaffrey, you know. But um, <clears throat> he, but he tested out uh, through the roof and, you know, he was productive. He, he you know, he, he sort of just checks a lot of boxes from a small school did you did you scout this guy? What do you think of Elijah Mitchell? Yeah, I scouted him, and I wish I could be Dr. Frankenstein and combine Elijah Mitchell with Trey Regis. <laughs> sure, because of course. This, as teammates, if you did that, you'd probably have the top back in this class. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, I agree. See that way. I loved Trey Regis, but I knew that he doesn't have the the athletic ability to yeah, be have the juice. a big time guy. Yeah, he's like he's like an aspiring Jordan Howard at this point. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah, but Elijah Mitchell. You know, for me, he didn't rank highly, but the the big issue is these are things that he can learn. Like, I think if he can hook on as a special teams player, he has some developmental skills as a runner that he can get better because of the athletic ability is so good. Um, To me, he reads leverage pretty well, um, and and when he makes mature decisions, it's because he's reading the leverage and pressing the crease. But he oftentimes, to me, when players press the crease – I'm looking for the best, the best pre, um, crease pressers press within a step of their block or of the line of scrimmage. Within a step. Right. The guys who do two to three steps or more have some work to do. And Mitchell presses a lot of his zone plays two to three steps from the line um, with the intent of setting up the, the cutback. So you know the intention's there. He knows he's supposed to do it, but he doesn't quite do it as well as he needs to at this point. Um, he does do a good job of manipulating unblocked defenders. I think he has to, you know, when he has to hesitate to avoid the first defender in pursuit of the open field, he sometimes attacks downfield too quickly. He's because of his speed, because of his athletic ability. Sometimes I think he doesn't know how to use it to manipulate defenders, you know, but he has to learn to take what he can get. He, he has all the athletic ability in the world to do the, the job well. But it's about learning how to set up, you know, with deeper presses, understand how to use his footwork well to bait defenders a little bit more, knowing when to slow down, when to speed up, setting up his pace, setting up the the length of his stride. And this bleeds into both um, elusiveness and agility and vision decision making. And those are the areas where he graded lower for me than other backs. 
And those are the two biggest areas for me. Again, the eyes, feet. So, so, so the other thing he's got to do in the NFL, if he's going to play with that type of um, you know, body and athleticism is catch the football. Did he grade out positively or negatively in, in that regard for you? Yeah, I mean, as a guy, you know, with routes, what I only saw from him were quick throwouts. That was like how they liked to use him. Um, but I like that they shifted him from the backfield to a wide receiver position. So they split him from the numbers. Um, and I think that right now he shows that he can address belt line targets well with the right technique using the underhand technique and use it away from his frame. So you see the basic hand position is good. Catching with the ball away from his body is good. But because of his usage, there wasn't enough to look at to say, can he use all the different hand positions? Can he make the tough catches against tight coverage? Can he win one-on-one against man-to-man? That's where the workouts will have to come from for teams, and I don't get to see that. So for me, it's the The kid kind of is like, you know, I feel like the ceiling for him – like when you talk about, a, I, I always look at comps and everybody, when they comp, they always do this thing where they like comp to like the best case scenario all the time. So there's like a million uh, Elijah Mitchell comps who, you know, got drafted and never played a fucking down in the league. So I understand that, you know, so he, he's, you know, he's sort of got like a five or 10% chance of being anything in the league given, you know, just his profile. I mean, it's just, you know, it's more likely that he's not going to pan out, but because of the athleticism, because of some of the things I target, you know, he's got a, he's got, you know, great yards per carry. I know yards per carry is one of those things that everybody says, you know, uh, it's the dumbest thing to look at. It's not that dumb. I mean, over the course of a long period of time, it's, it's, it's actually somewhat. Yeah. In other words, I'm not watching 2017 Sunbelt games, man. I mean, sorry, but I got to look at, you know, something yeah. and, you know, he was, he was productive. The other thing I look at is whether or not you've ever reached 20 catches. He did that. Uh, size is another thing. And then athleticism. I mean, these are some of the very first things. Look, he checks all those boxes. You know, he's a, he was a productive back with some explosion, had some big runs, and caught the ball to the backfield. And that sounds a lot like if you're going to, um, you know, do a ceiling comp, it's Aaron Jones at his size. And so he has to be that good in order to be good at all because even Aaron Jones, who's completely dope has been sort of marginalized because he came from UTEP and, and, you know, was a fifth round pick instead of, you know, so he's been sort of fighting the uphill battle and he's going to have the same problem, Elijah Mitchell, but he's got to be dope in order to be good. If you know what I mean, you know, he's got to be that good. So, you know, I I think that, I think it's a really slim chance, but at the end of the day, um, he, he does have a ceiling comp that does actually make him, very fantasy viable going forward. So, you know, it, it, look at, you know, dynasty players going into your rookie draft, you're not reaching for this guy. It's just when he falls to you, 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 you push the button in the late third or whatever, you know, early fourth or whatever, you know, you're not reaching all the way up to, to take this guy, but you know, especially at landing spot, of course, after the draft, you know, if he goes undrafted and, and can't sign anywhere, then he is dust. Who gives a shit? You, you know, don't pick him. But you know, if he, if he finds some fertile soil in the fourth or fifth round, he could get interesting. Uh, at least I think you'd agree with that. I, I certainly think that it's worth taking a shot with someone. I mean, I'll say this about Aaron Jones is, you know, when I remember signing Aaron Jones, Aaron Jones was the best receiver in that draft class outside right. of Christian McCaffrey. The, the catches he made were redonkulous. And, you know, but, um, but at the same <laughs> why, time. Why do, you th- why do you think I asked about Elijah Mitchell's catching? Because yeah. that's the window in for him. Like, that's yes. what he has to be able to do. If he can't do that, it's it's not going to happen. And exactly. so – 
that's why I'm a little but, bit concerned, right? But it's still, yeah. I mean, if you if you have if you find value and you can take a shot on somebody, there's there are places where you go, okay, look, the landing spot's good and draft capital's good. Why not? Absolutely, good. That's a very good point. Okay, so uh, Jaquan Hardy. Um, if you have you, I, good, you're looking it up. So Jaquan Hardy uh, made an appearance on on this very podcast. Uh, my producer Michael Duncan and the Shanghai Warrior Mark Mathic came on here and interviewed him. And and Mark Mathic is just an absolute football junkie and was just so excited to talk to Jaquan and and he was a really awesome interview. He was he was just so appreciative and we were so appreciative to have him. So he's kind of our you know he's kind of our baby. You know we want him to. You know, he's like our son now. We want to, we're cheer we're we got the Jaquan signs. You go Jaquan, right? Jaquan, sorry. Um, so either way, whether it's Jaquan or his twin brother Jaquan, we want both Hardy brothers in the NFL, and we want them to be good. And when you look at his his metrics, it's pretty impressive. And so I'm kind of curious now. You've scouted a few games of him. What did you see, and what'd you like? He reminds me a lot of Kylan Hill, but just with unproven speed and burst. Because when I watch players. Again, you watch him at that level. How fast is he? Until I see the metrics, I don't really know. So for me, 4.1 shuttle is very good. 6.93 is very good for um, to me as a baseline. Those are all startable numbers for me um, for running back in terms of being able to, in terms of quickness and change of direction skill. So that's very good. That's promising for him um, because he then compares a little bit closer to Kylan Hill, who I actually like as a back. Um, you know, and when you look at his style, I mean, big, strong, tough in terms of what you saw from his 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 ability. You could see that, you know, he's improved his ball security during his career. This is a guy who had 219 carry stretch with one fumble, which is star caliber rate, even though for me, he had a reserve caliber overall because he had a ton of fumbles earlier in his career. But he's trending upward and I give bonus points for trending upward. If you started off shitty and then you like got, then you held your own and did good later on, you're getting a higher grade, even if your overall score might be lower. If I just looked at the overall career, makes um, sense, you know. So this is a guy that I think he could play well in a gap scheme because he's physical and he's quick footed and he can attack play um um, tar- um gaps quickly downhill. And I'd rather see him in some in a scheme where there's a little bit of gap, even though NFL runs a lot of zone, because he tends to try and bounce or cut back too soon with plays. And again, it's because he's playing against lower level competition right. and he's trying to out-athlete people. Um, but he has second and third and fourth and fifth effort in terms of working through contact. I love that about him. He sure does, man. And, and if he, if the rest of his game becomes as good as his second effort, he will be a starter in the NFL. Now, I don't think I'm counting on that in any way. No, you can't. Um, you're right. He has to just – he does have to cultivate a little better pad level. Um, he has all the size and pad level to work well at a collegiate level, but he has to get a little lower after contact for the NFL to really dig out under direct hits. And I think he can do that because he already drops his pads. He just doesn't do it always as early. His game management needs to be better. Like – he has to understand when he's in the red zone and he's or he's backed up into his own red zone. This is not the time to reverse field bounce or cut back. <laughs> yeah, like, I saw I saw some of that on some of his highlight stuff. It was like he'd make these plays where you're like, 
no, no, that was a loss of 20, dude. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he made some of those boneheaded plays. But if, and, you know, I wouldn't assume that you listened to this interview, but in the interview that I heard that, that he did for us, you know, the one thing that he did strike me as is, is eager to lean into coaching, which I think will actually be something that, hey, if, if someone just gives him a little bit of a sliver of an opportunity, he, he might take it. So, you know, that, that, all, that's the one thing. Yeah. All the tools are there. Like, yeah. I'd say all the tools are there. And this is someone that um, he's, he's a guy that can open his hips well. He can make the, the hard cuts. He can press within a step of the line. He shows the ability to do that. The contact balance, it's all great. To me, I use a spectrum for comparing players. I like, I've like i been doing this for years, which is basically, here's the top player on the spectrum. If you were, And there's usually a common thread or two. Like, you know, if he's at the low end, maybe the common denominator or the variable, excuse me, the, the variable is athletic ability or the right. variable is some technical skill. So at the very top is LaDainian Tomlinson. That's the very top guy. Now, that ain't happening. Now, right. below that is probably Marion Barber, which is like you subtract the speed and the quickness, but you have the ability to make the tough cuts, bounce after contact, you know, catch the ball. There's Marion Barber. Like Kylan Hills after that, maybe close to Marion, but he's in that range. And then I had Julio, Julius Jones. How did I know that, you know, where Jaquan Hardy's numbers are and that I can look, you know, this is usually what I look up for the post draft is when players had their workouts after I published it. Then I put that in there and I refactor stuff. I would have, I would have, you know, Jaquan Hardy probably closer to Kylan Hill at this point, which means this is a guy who might be draftable. This is a guy who you could probably take in the fifth or sixth round, maybe probably the seventh. And hashtag hashtag good. draft Jaquan. I mean, hashtag yeah. draft Jaquan is what we've been saying, you know. Yeah. So we just want to get him drafted. It sounds like a lot of fun. First of all, he's a small school guy, but he's got NFL game. You know, he's he yeah. measures out. You know, he's big enough, strong enough. He's uh, he's he's got the functional agility you're talking about. He's got you know. Did NFL you ask him about back. his knee? Did you ask him about his knee? Because Michael, hop on. Yeah, because this is the thing that I want to know about, and I'll set it up this way. In his tape or at his webpage on Tiffin, there's a there's a thing about that he he had a knee injury, and I've looked it up in terms of just on the web about what interviews they had, and it was a meniscus tear, I believe, an eighty percent meniscus tear, where the doctor a doctor told him that he might not ever play again Holy shit. earlier in his career, and recommended that he not play, but then he came back, and he doesn't look like a player who's bothered by. The injury that he had. So I was just curious if you ever talked about the injury in the interview. So I'll have to go back and check, but from what I remember, um, I do remember talking about that at least a little bit. It might have even been before the interview. I'm not sure if we talked about it during it. Um, but from what I understand, uh, like he came back and basically he came back at 100%. Um, and he was able to maintain that. And from what I remember him saying, like there was no signs of. Like, uh, I don't really know the correct word, but there was no sign or anything. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And especially considering the fact that he spent uh, like 
Tiffin didn't have a season this year due to COVID. Yeah. Um, and uh, he spent basically the entire season more or less at a uh, like a training facility um, working on his body and doing all that kind of stuff. And I'm pretty sure he said he got like a clean bill of health in all of those particular areas due that's, to that injury. That's great because he looked like it on the field. And, and you know, the, I mean, Nick Chubb was a good example of a back who tore three ligaments and Shit. people were like, he's done. And I remember asking my buddy Gene Bramble over at Football Guys, you know, we were driving back to the Senior Bowl, and I had watched more tape on any player, more more tape on Nick Chubb than any player, because I knew people would say, "You went to Georgia, you worked at Georgia, you're therefore a Georgia fan," and I'm not. I'm not even a college football fan, but um, you know, I knew I'd have to overcome that. So I and I knew I had him rated high, and when I told Gene, "Okay, he tore three ligaments into you know all three ligaments, but is you know three of the three of the four ligaments." And Gene t- talked to me about the surgery and he was like that surgery and for him to come back as fast as he did, he said he must've had a great surgery and great rehab because that type of surgery, either they tie it too tight or too loose and the knees always too loose or too tight to bug them. And you, you can see from Chubb that he hasn't had much of an issue. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, I hope he's, I hope he's great. And once again, everybody, Michael Duncan. Thank you so much, Michael Duncan. All right. So, you know, enough with the running backs. I've got a, I've got a question that I think will, uh, you know, this is like, it's unbelievable. I've never seen a guy be so productive and yet just the Twitter sphere is so divided on Devonte Smith. It's incredible. I don't know what is going on, but we're, just put simply, where do you fall on Devonte Smith, sir? I have him ranked fourth overall. Yeah. Um, and which is pretty darn good. He, I have him at a at an eighty-five talent score for my depth of talent, which is a starter, someone who could start immediately um, in a large role and learn on the go. Now it depends on how they want to use him. To me, you look at a comparison short range. I think he's ahead of where John Brown was when John Brown came out for Arizona, and John Brown had a pretty good start to his career before injuries took over. I think he can give you eventually what Emmanuel Sanders was capable of giving people when he was used as a primary guy or used at a high level. Yes. And then I think the absolute blow it out of the box, everything goes right, have a great quarterback, great offense. Marvin Harrison could be that type of comp when you look at the size you know, and the way he plays. And I like him because he does win the ball in the air very well. Yep. Um, he's a very good red zone receiver. And small receivers who are good red zone receivers, especially with how Mark um, Mac Jones would throw him open. They they run the sail route where yeah. they will throw it high and behind the defender so every time. And, and Smith is great at that route. Now, are you going to ask him always to make contested plays in the NFL? No. Where it really comes into focus for where people have problems with him, especially some of the film watcher community, is that they're like, well, he's going to get you know, pushed out of bounds a lot. He's going to get pinned to the boundary, and we're worried about that. You hear Greg Cosell talk about that. Like, he's going to get pinned to the boundary. And I saw those instances of that happening. But most wide receivers who are good pros learn to, to release inside first on routes that may actually work up the seam where they have to play more on the outside. But – if you learn a good technique to work inside, he has the quickness to do it. He has the footwork to do it. You see all that on tape. I don't think it's going to be a big deal for him to learn how to release inside, stack, and then be able to work downfield that way. Um, he does struggle against 
the most patient corners who can be physical with them. We're talking about a handful of guys who are going to be a handful of guys in the league <laughs> who can do that. So it's not like, you know, maybe he doesn't turn out to be a top tier primary receiver who's going to, who's going to beat the best cornerback every week in every moment, you know, but at the same time, there aren't many receivers who can do that. He's still a guy who to me has a thousand yard, 1100, 1200 yard potential. And in an offense, like say what Stefan Diggs got to do and Stefan Diggs, is a guy who can beat those guys. John Brown in the Bills offense, when you're running crossing routes, they're man beaters for a reason. Right. And on top of that, you get three to four windows for the quarterback to throw to you in contrast to, say, a stop route right. or a, a, a comeback or an out route where you get one window and then you've got to adjust. And you get three, which is easier for the quarterback, easier for the receiver, more yards after the catch opportunity still downfield with that. So Smith, to me, you know, is a fine prospect. And the size thing, I mean, Sean, people worry about Deshaun um, Jackson, and that's a comparison often for him, and I see that comp. Um, But you have to understand that Deshaun Jackson, the fact that he was talented enough that you can count on him that way, and he could still produce to that level despite the injuries, speaks to the, his longevity and what he could do in his career when he's healthy. And I think Devonta Smith, is you can make an argument that he might turn out to be that type of player. So before we get a, away from uh, Devonte Smith, I'm just going to ask you quickly, uh, where do you have Mac Jones ranked in your quarterbacks? I have him third, but essentially... Close to tied with Fields at uh, at you could pick them. They were that close together. So here's here's the reason I asked that question because <laughs> you can't have Devonte Smith not be good and Mac Jones also not be good. It's kind of tough to do that. And this is you know I understand the whole argument that he doesn't move outside the pocket and make plays, but it's much easier to project quarterbacks because when you say that they have the physical ability. It's much harder to project a quarterback who you're like, he's got to get better, even better conceptually than he is. But he might be that player that we do say, I call him Baker or Chef. My buddy Mark Schofield came up with that term. Some guys are more task-oriented. Some guys are more creative. Brady was the most task-oriented quarterback who hid the seams. Peyton Manning was a more of a creative player um, who was tended to be more impulsive, Who, but he was so... But he could be creative in a lot of situations. I think Mac Jones might be a little bit more Peyton Manning than I thought. But, you know, again, that's the risk is, is he, is you know, I think he makes all the throws and all the creativity in the world to do the things that he needs to do. And he's tough. And when you see how he targeted Smith. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there's a stat. I've, I've probably mentioned it now. It's going to be like the fourth or fifth time I've mentioned it. But I love sharing it because if you, ha- if you haven't seen it, it's really like you, you have to just deal with this stat one way or the other. So in, in 2000, this, this is the highest rated, uh, the, excuse me, the highest quarterback rating when targeted per season, minimum of like 50 targets or something like that. You know, So in 2017, the highest quarterback rating when targeted was A.J. Brown. In 2018, it was C.D. Lamb. In 2019 and 2020, it was Devontae Smith. You know, a lot of somebody's people, good there is all I'm saying. Yeah, and either lot, Mac Jones made him so fucking good it's unbelievable. Then Mac Jones should be the first overall pick, 
or they're yeah. both really good. Like I said this last time, last year about 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 LSU, right? It was like they were so good that someone was good. You yeah. know, it was like <laughs> like somebody's good over there. Yeah. I don't know who's good, who's yeah. not. Like you know, and it turned out they're probably all good. Yeah. And that makes sense because they were so fucking good. But somebody's good. You know, you can't hate them all, you know. And so the, the, there's a good. lot of Mac They're Jones and Devontae Smith hate. They went 13-0, and 0, smoked everybody, won the fucking Heisman. Like, Mac Jones completed 80% of his passes for 11 yards a clip. Like, what more do you want him to do? I just did an hour filming with Mark Schofield on, on Devontae Smith um, this week. And the joke was, after we were watching, I was like, dude, Devontae Smith better have given – Mac Jones at least a week or two with the Heisman because <laughs> right. that dude made him, <laughs> right. you know, on that right. end, at least he, just a week or two. I mean, he deserved it for, if he won it, he deserved it. I'm sure. I don't keep up with that shit. I didn't even know he won until after I did the RSP because I don't right. even keep up with the narratives. I don't R- do right. that. So, right. but at the same time, when I found that I'm like, yeah, well watching Mac Jones and watching some of these plays, shit you know yeah that made him he he gave smith the chance to excel yeah absolutely i mean you like i said someone's got to be good and certainly they were well here's a place where uh not somebody might not be good and i'm gonna go with tamori and terry i want to talk about him because he's an an enticing player (laughs) and and you know i was told like he ran 23 miles an hour at some point so i thought he was gonna be fast he didn't test all that fast and you know, and, and then, you know, I didn't watch every game. I don't know that you did or didn't. Maybe this is one of the ones you watched four or five, but you watched more than me, damn it. And, but what I did see was, the, you know, so for me, I'm always looking like, can he do this or can he do that? And the quarterback play was so bad in Florida State. Like, I, I it was inconclusive, incomplete grade because there were so few instances of a, of a well-thrown ball to a, to a sophisticated route that it's almost like, well, I, I don't know if he's good or not. Here's my question. Is Tamori and Terry any good? <laughs> no. Man, I was disappointed. <laughs> I watched more games than what I tracked, but I tracked eight games. And I okay. tracked, you know, I track targets by, was it catchable, but the receiver had to work for it within reason. Um, and 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 you would say in the NFL, like if, the, if your typical commentator would say, you should have caught that. And you and you agree, and most people would agree with how you define what should have was. Then that's general accuracy. I mean, the court, the receiver had to help the quarterback out, but it's with an expectation. Then I do pinpoint, which this, the basis is this: when Bill Walsh, you know, when um, Joe Montana was throwing a pass to Jerry Rice in practice, it was a, a he completed a deep pass, and Mike Holmgren said, "You know, awesome pass, Joe." And Bill Walsh took. Mike Holmgren pulled him to the side and said, don't ever say that in a situation like that, because that was not a pinpoint pass. What do you mean? He goes, well, he didn't throw it in stride to him. And where the coverage was located, the coverage had a chance at the ball. So that's not pinpoint. So I look at pinpoint and general as different types of accuracies. And then I also grade versus contact with those issues, with those different types of targets and without contact. And so I saw he was like 75% of his targets that were against pinpoint versus contact. He caught, which isn't bad. It's, you know, um, he was 50% against general targets where he had to work for it against contact. But it wasn't a high sample size that I tracked there. But he did have a number of tight coverage targets. But those were both versus general and pinpoint 
He was at 64%, which isn't great. It's a little better than average, but whatever. The issue with him is that speed, um, with is the whole speed and acceleration thing. The speed at first, you're watching the highlights, and when you watch the highlights, this dude is big and he can motor. And then, you know, he weighs in at 207. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm a little disappointed there, but nothing horrible. You know, he's still a pretty decent-sized guy. Might even add 5 to 10 pounds of muscle. It might be really uh, a nice dude. But what I noticed is against press coverage, against top cornerbacks like C.J. Henderson at, at Florida when he, and he got drafted in the first round by the Jaguars and should end up being a pretty good corner or pride at Notre Dame or other cornerbacks who could play tight man coverage and had elite speed and more often, moreover, elite um, initial burst. He could not get separation in that seven to 12 yard span off the line. And if you can't, if you don't have that top area 20 shuttle and top area three cone drill against press coverage, that doesn't translate well because you can't win the route. You have to win the route early to get that, to use that built up speed. He has great build up speed, but that means he needs a big runway to do it. And no quarterback pressing him is going to give him a big runway. That's why right. Cooper Cup, who has a slow 40, but has terrific three cone and short shuttle time, he gets off the line quickly. Allen Robinson gets off the line quickly. You know, then yeah. if you can get off the line quickly, you can stack guys and then control the route. But if you can't put a guy on his heels and make him guess because you're getting the early advantage, then who cares if it if you have top speed, if it takes you forever to get there. And that's his problem in addition to some hands technique issues that he can get a little better. I love his blocking. I love him his ability to go up and win the ball and the way he plays big. But even watching him run, when they used him as a runner and you're thinking, oh, this could be good because they even use him as a like a quarterback sometimes or as a runner. And then you're watching him not be able to beat linebackers with short area speed, quickness. And I was like, oh, yeah, let me watch a little closer on these and isolate all these like um, press coverage looks. And that yeah. got worse. And so he was a guy I thought was going to be in my top 15 just based on rep, what I was hearing a little bit. And I and I barely have him in my top thirty six. Yeah, that that's fair. And and you know, he was someone that I thought could be sort of that. You know, look, what you mentioned, Allen Robinson. Play, it's not even close. It's not that. So let's just cross him off my 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 to do list. He's done. Uh, off the bridge, as as I like to say. So he's him and Mike Gasecki are down there. They're 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 in the hot tub together. But. Um, Tylen Wallace is another one that, you know, I had a little bit of a love affair. Now I'm, I'm guessing that maybe you liked his tape a little bit more because he, but he didn't test all that quick either. He was a lower percentile, you know, athlete with everything he did testing wise. And he's 5'11", 190 or whatever, 5'11", 195. Uh, so he wasn't, he wasn't athletic enough for that size. I, I, I'm getting a little nervous about Tylen Wallace. He's also a, you know, a senior injury history boy oh boy tell me tell save tylen wallace from getting thrown off the bridge here <laughs> well i'll say this if tylen wallace gets thrown off the bridge i'll probably get thrown off the bridge with him on this particular case and i'm aware that that may happen um because of what you're talking about in terms of his testing but you know this was a guy that earlier in his career before the acl tear 
was one of the three to four fastest wide receivers on, in this class from what I saw in terms of mile per hour tracking of him before the injury. Um, yeah. So he certainly had that. The fact I remember. That he, yeah. He could go up and win the ball. You know, I think he's a tough blocker. He's, he's willing a to dog. fix it up. Yeah, he's a dog. And that's he's it. He's a dog. I love this player. Yeah. I just want him to be good in the NFL because he, I love him. He's one of my favorite players. So here's the thing with him. Uh, the, the narrative that you can construct that might work out is that he came back from his injury, and we all know that when you deal with ACL injuries, it can take a year yep. of even playing to psychologically get back to being the guy that you were. And it's not the long speed because, you're you know, once you've healed enough, the long speed isn't the issue. It's when you actually have to plant and cut. Yep. And make and really or take a hit to the knee and be really confident about it. Absolutely. And I don't think he was fully confident. He was playing with a brace for most of the year last year. He didn't have great quarterback play. Um, and then to end the year, the penultimate game before his the the bowl game, he takes a hit on that knee and injures the knee. Now he didn't injure the ACL, but he injured that knee. You know he's got to be thinking about this. Most guys probably would have said, you know what? It's a career. I'm going, I'm going to the NFL. Let me get <laughs> right. ready. He plays in the bowl game. I don't remember what he did in that bowl game. I think I watched it, but I don't remember which one was the bowl game. Right. He, and I think he played pretty well from what I heard. So, you know, he the fact that he did that tells you one, he loves the game. Two, he's competitive. Three, he knows he needs to get over this damn injury and like, you know, and play through it. Yeah, like There's mentally people. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the fact that he's willing to do that, I, I'm encouraged that I think he'll be better than what his times will be a year removed. We'll see a little bit more of the Tillman Wallace that we used to see. And on top of it, there's, you know, people who worry about the injury because they're like, well, his brother, his twin brother had the injury and yeah. his career's done. And they're like, you know, they, there's a very good article that was done, I think, in The Athletic or somewhere about this, where it's like, listen, it's not a genetic thing. His brother just got subpar care compared to where he could have gone if he were a college player. He was a high school player, and it never really healed the way it could have, and he got hurt again. And it's not its not because they're twins that now, you know, Tylen's going to end up in the same boat. You know, if it does, it's a coincidence. Okay, so you, you Tylen is not any – first of all, he can't be thrown off a bridge because he kicked my ass before I even tried to grab him. He's a dog. So I love Tylen Wallace. I'm with you. Here's the here's the guy. I think maybe Jonathan Adams was who we wish Tamori and Terry was. Is that a crazy take, or what are we thinking with Jonathan Adams? I love this dude. No, I think you're absolutely right. I totally agree with the Jonathan Adams take too. Insane catch radius. To me, he compares to Kenny Galladay in terms of what he could become, and maybe yeah. even better than Galladay. Um, he's a guy that. The catch radius is insane. He, with the routes that he knows how to run well, he runs them well. Um, he's he's someone that can use his hands and his feet. I'd like to see him use them together a little bit more um, and off the line of scrimmage. Um, he's going to have to get better if he was going to be a complete receiver to be able to drop his weight and come to a stop and get in and out of his breaks a little faster. That's not so hard to do if you have the ability – to drop your weight in the first place, as long as he has the mobility to do it. And from what I remember, I think he does have that mobility. It's just a matter of putting it together. 
Um, he knows how to manipulate routes in terms of widening the defender or narrowing it to the inside and setting up the breaks that way. Um, to me, he has an effective peak. He knows different manipulation skills. Um, he he understands how to throw some double moves in there. Um, you know, he just has to, you know, he either doesn't get significant. What I see here is he doesn't get significant bender sync when trying to execute breaks or he loses his footing when he achieves the weight drop that's best for the movement. So it's erratic right now what he's doing, but it doesn't mean he can't. It's just the bend, the physical ability is there, the technique isn't. And he'll, so I think he'll work on it and get better. And that gives you some real nice upside for him as a player who right now I have him rated as an, a rotational starter grade, meaning that with the right team and the right fit, they could probably put him in the slot like Kenny Galladay and have a matchup against safeties or linebackers and he's going to blow them out of the water and get big plays. And then occasionally you can run him on the outside on some man beaters like crossing routes or use the occasional slant. And he'll win on some of those two or throw a double move and use his size to win against some undersized corners and have some good games. Um, and then he can build on it from there. I like him a lot. I think he's you know, to have that high of a score and still be a guy who has some room for development is promising. I love it. I love it. I mean, you know, as a dynasty player, we're always looking, uh, you know, for me, it's like third, fourth, obviously fifth round. If there is one, like later in the draft, you're, you're looking for upside. You know, you don't need a guy that, you know, I mean, you're not looking for Danny Amendola. I mean, you know, you, you can find a guy like that. So you're looking for Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay slipped a little bit. You're looking for Gabe Davis. Gabe Davis went in the fourth round. You know, you're looking for guys that, you know, fit the profile that maybe get overlooked a little bit, but then once they get on the field, they're actually dope. Um, so, yeah, uh, Jonathan Adams, I'm, when you talk add, about – go ahead. Add Jalen Camp and Jacob Harris to your list for those rounds too. Um, Jalen Camp, if you have, have you know anything about him? Not enough. You okay. tell us right now, baby. Let me let me tell you, you're gonna love him. Jalen Camp, Georgia Tech, 6'2, 226. Oh yeah. And oh and, yeah. And not only that, besides the fact that his dad trains pro football players, he played the triple option offense, so he he rarely got the ball until last year when they changed the offense at Georgia Tech. Now, here's his numbers: four four three forty. Yes. 416 20 shuttle, 702 three cone, and 40 inch vertical, and lifted the bar 30 times. Yeah. Okay. He can catch the football. He has an insane catch radius, great tracking over his shoulder and directly over his head, and can switch shoulders with his back to the defender to make the catch. He's someone that, um, I think is only going to get better. He doesn't know how to break yet. Like his heart breaks are his heart breaks look like Tim Tebow doing the kneel right now. But like <laughs> he's but he'll get better at it. He has the bend to do it. But his but this guy who can catch and run and he's strong, very important. Um Jacob Harris out of um UCF. Harris is I think 65211. Many thought he might be a tight end cuz he looked like a lumbering slow dude on his tape. And the reason he looked like a lumbering slow dude on his tape is he was a soccer player who walked on, played special teams, and was playing behind Gabriel Davis and was playing behind Marlon Williams and playing with him behind a number of guys Ooh. and slowly growed into the point where he became 
a good receiver. Like you're starting to watch him. The one thing you saw is even though he lumbered in and out of breaks on short and intermediate routes, it was because he didn't know how to run routes. But when he got deep, he was behind people and he was very fluid catching the ball. And then I'd start watching him and you start to watch the progression of his tape or if I was going at whatever time I'd note that when I watched it, and I'm like, holy shit, he looks like an NFL wide receiver on that play. Oh, man, that, that break was pretty darn good. And then he'd sink back into the morass of trying to figure out, you know, what he was doing on certain plays. But his, his I don't remember the exact numbers on his pro day, but they were very good. They put the rest wow. any question that he was a tight end. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is a guy I have rated very low right now. But again, this is why I hate, I always say ratings, rankings suck. But yeah. we need them anyway. You know, with a guy like Harris, I've written, He's ranked low, but if you're if you're smart enough to be reading this, then know that you need to draft this dude at the end of your drafts because in two to three years, he the Packers will probably draft him, and he'll be like he'll be like Robert Tunyon for Robert for wide receivers. You know, he's, yeah. He's it, well, in two in two to three years, he's going to be thirty years old. That's the only problem. I mean, yes, true, yeah, true. look, you know, but he's this kid's in the Chase Claypool mold where you know Claypool sometimes didn't look all that crisp in his routes but he tested through the roof and a lot of people including myself thought he might be a tight end i mean guilty as charged but um but with jacob harris i mean this kid's 6'5 220 jumped out of the gym and i i don't have the agility numbers here but it says he's 91st percentile i mean ran a 443 um you know this is a this is a real dude at 6'5 220 now He's 24 years old, played at UCF, and really didn't produce until he was 22 years old. So, I mean, there's some issues in his production profile, but you're right. When you're talking about swinging for the fences late, that's exactly what we're looking for. So, these two names are absolutely awesome. So, Jacob Harris out of UCF and and Jalen Camp. Look, his problem, the reason he was off my radar, he didn't even have like 800 yards in his career. I mean, he had like, I mean, he... He didn't have over 180 yards receiving until he's a 22-year-old senior. That's a problem. Run, 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 and run some more. That's all they did. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, you got to question this guy's decision making for going to Georgia (laughs) Tech in the first place. But other than that, you're right. Six two, two twenty six, ran a four four eight. Like this is another guy. Great agility, burst, uh, strong as strong as all, all all get out. I mean. These types of guys, uh, you know, hey, they, they could actually transition to Darren Waller types. I mean, I think maybe they're a little too light to be square with you, but you, you get the gist. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're special athletes, and if they're actually good at football, especially like Jalen Camp playing in that, you know, like the wishbone, uh, you know, it's like yeah. uh, Bronco Nagurski, I think, was their quarterback. Um, but, you know, it's like um, he could be good. We just wouldn't and, know it. There's no, and, way to, and, no way to tell. And the, the thing that we always have to remember is like, I, I, I laughed at your thought of like, we have to question his decision-making, which is funny. But then the other thing too could have been, he could have been a late bloomer. A lot of quarterbacks are late bloomers yes. who like Aaron Rodgers didn't grow, you know, until, and so a lot of times recruiters recruit guys. Why guys are four and five star recruits are the same reason why guys start in high school early on. It's because they're bigger than everybody else and they've gotten their man body before everybody else did. So he might have been one of those guys that might have been smaller and and not as athletic and not as filled out as he was once he got into school. Saquon Barkley was like 
I think he was something like 5'10", 185 or something like that once he went to Penn State. And then he like had a massive growth spurt. So if he's one of those guys, then you can understand that maybe the only scholarship he could get was at Tech. Um, so one last one last wide receiver I did want to get to who's in this mold, but you know, a uh, big alpha type is is Warren Jackson. And a lot of my followers are like these Warren Jackson stands. I've got a guy, you know, they're all Warren Jackson everywhere. I just can't get away from Warren Jackson. So I have to ask, what what do you think of Warren Jackson and 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 uh, whether or not he can be a pro? Well, you know, I really love certain things about Warren Jackson because he's tough. He's a, he's a tough motherfucker when it comes to catching the ball. I mean, he's a guy that can get sandwiched between defenders, and he knows how to turn his body away and take the hit, keep the ball in possession there. He's a guy who's going to win contested plays. He can win in the middle of the field. I like that about his game. The concern I have is the short area quickness, the short area speed to get free in the vertical game without a long buildup of speed to yeah. be able to get there. So is he necessarily an outside guy? No. And then that, then you start asking yourself, well, is he a slot player? Can he be a slot player? And I don't, I wonder about that. I have real questions whether he can really do that. But then you think, okay, well, he could be used in three and four receiver sets. Probably four, four receiver sets as an inside guy who can work outside routes. Kind of where you run the sail route, you run the seam route. You know, you run some in-breaking crossers and over routes, and he could be very good in that area of the field. So I can see where he can get production for you. But it's more along the lines of what you see with Alan Lazard in the best-case scenario because of how he gets schemed open. And then the the worst, the intermediate case might be what we saw of Colin Johnson last year Bingo. with Jacksonville, you know, where you can kind of – tough guy, can make the plays – but he's not, you know, he has some bend as a route runner, but he's not going to be beating you on timing routes on a regular basis. And yeah, he's not going to get I, deep I, on I, you. I sort of look at Auden Tate and Colin Johnson as the two guys that I think he comps most to. And look, both, those, to. both those guys, you know, are playing in the pros, but I don't think they're excelling in the pros. And, and I don't yeah. think Warren Jackson will either. And I, it sounds like you agree with that. Yeah, he's going to be a pro, I think, but I don't think he's going to be a pro starter. Yeah, bingo. So this wasn't on the show sheet, but it's definitely a player you know. And it's the guy that I've been coming around to more and more and more. And I'm starting to wonder just how high I'm going to move him up. And that's Nico Collins. At 6'4", 215, he's got all the athletic measurables. He played in the absolutely shitty Michigan offense was somewhat productive. We kind of saw it last uh, last year with Donovan Peoples-Jones, who was underwhelming at Michigan and yet um, was kind of the prospect that we thought he was coming from high school into college where, where he was like, you know, I think he was like the number one rated wide receiver in that class uh, going into college. Um, Nico Collins looks like he might be actually really good. Uh, what do you think about that take? Yeah, I'm with you on that one. And I have to just say, too, that, you know, Michael Duncan's great. Michael's great, you know, and we're going to keep <laughs> saying things like about Nico Collins and how good he is. But Michael's great. See if you can cut that out while we're talking. Yeah, about go for it. But, but you know, we're going to give him some cred, you know. But but Nico Collins has is my wide receiver 15 on my board, which is pretty darn good. I, I put him in the same kind of zip code uh, or maybe say the same city 
not the same zip code as Brian Edwards. Um, sure. In terms of, you know, this is a guy that I think I've graded at as a contributor. He can be, um, you know, starter production in a limited role right now. Um, and, and he's someone that can give ret- more returns outside of that as he gets develops a little bit more. I love the size and ability to use that size as a bully pulpit to win the football. And he's faster than you think as you know, and yeah. he's someone that can build up that speed and really make adjustments on the football. He actually runs some nice timing routes in terms of his ability to bend and break um, in and out of cuts. So he's good at that. Um, I just think that against maybe man to man coverage, he has to be a little bit better um, sure. in terms of, earning separation early. Um, but I think that they a team could use him as a free access receiver, kind of like a Vincent Jackson type yeah. of player who can win with against off coverage and do some really good work for you. Mark Schofield, I laugh, doesn't really love him because the jo- Mark made the joke that I was the worst quarterback in NCAA um, at, one t- at, at, at one time. And so as a running quarterback – who was among the worst. I really appreciated receivers who would break back to the ball to the point that they even worked back to the line of scrimmage if they needed to, right. to let me know that they were open. He said that he didn't like that Nico Collins didn't work back as much as he'd like to see. Yes. But that's actually very important. Uh, you know, yeah. that's something that's, you know, probably overlooked in a lot of situations, but yeah, you got to work back to the football. I mean, you, cause if yeah. you just stand there, you're covered, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. and if you keep running down the field, you're, you're too far away. Yeah. Like, you know, you can so yeah, working back to the football, yeah. any, any, you know, but, very I think important. That's a, but I think that's also a, a symbol also of maybe what goes on in Michigan and I'm not, you know, is just coaching and the program in itself. And sometimes you find that players who underwhelm, who are talented, but underwhelm in a program, it, it's part of it's the maturity and how the program handles things. I think a scheme. I think a, I think a scheme fit for Michigan was they should bring in Adam Gaze as their offensive coordinator. That'd be an absolute. That'd be a scheme fit. <laughs> hey, let me ask. Let me ask you a question. Who do you have just ahead of um, of Nico Collins? I have him at wide receiver eleven. I think you said okay. fifteen or fourteen or whatever. Who are the yeah. couple people right ahead of him for you? I have Cornell Powell slightly ahead of him. Josh Palmer slightly. Get ahead the hell of him. out of here with Cornell Powell. I have I have Jalen Darden a little bit ahead of that. Sure. Um, and then, and then those are the guys within that range. So you, you said uh, Powell, Darden, and who else? Palmer, Josh Palmer. Wow. Okay. Out of Tennessee. Yeah. These are all guys that. To I like me, Josh Palmer, but he's yeah. way down there for me. So the, that's the, interesting. Yeah, these are all guys to me that can function. They're that's because I think all of them are slower dudes. You know, yeah. so you, you know you're look to me they're more like in that Hakeem Nicks mold, which is you can isolate them one on one and with their route ability and their skill at at the catch point and their ability to run routes can win one-on-one when isolated, but most likely will do a lot of their work in the middle of the field. Um, so they're more skilled technicians than they are great athletes. Um, so, but they're in that same range. Like for me, the same tier goes down. Let me tell you how big this tier is Please. Though, because that gives you an idea because Moore's at an 83 score, but Palmer and Powell, are like in the same range of where Nico Collins is. Literally, that goes the same guys in that tier include Camp, Jalen Camp, just below Collins, Amon Ross St. Brown, Adams, yeah. Deami De- Brown, Seth Williams, Des Fitzpatrick, Dwayne Eskridge, 
you know, Simi Fihoko, you know, um, and these are all guys that are within that, within a point of each other. And that means that it's about what you're looking for and where they land and where they fit. Because, you know, a guy like Nico Collins, if he ends up on a team that really needs a guy who can be that free access receiver, he's going to probably jump a number of spots. Whereas, like, if Cornell Powell lands on a team where they already have that kind of guy, then you're like, yeah, you're going to drop him down more. But if they so, don't, then you might add him up. So this is going to be a fun-ass question because, I mean, I don't know if you can tell, but I really like you. <laughs> this is so much fun. <laughs> I really do, man. I love you. And so I love disagreeing with people I like because I don't like it to be to be, to be be tough. But I am just afraid to ask you where you have Kadarius Tony. Okay. I actually have him fifth overall on my board. Woo. Here's the what. Here's the reason why. Okay, and, but here's also. But I'm going to give you a couple things with it. I have him fifth because I see him very much in the Golden Tate mode. Like if you look at Golden Tate, you see a guy who can give you ninety. Went in this prime gave you ninety to one hundred catches, eleven to twelve hundred yards, can run after the catch and can score touchdowns. Now, he also tracks the ball better than Golden. No, he doesn't. He doesn't track the ball better than Golden Tate, but he tracks the ball well. He has better hand position as a pass catcher than Golden Tate. There's three players in the 16 years that I've done this study of, of players that who had shitty hand position on how to track footballs and were productive. The most productive was Golden Tate. The middle ground guy was um, Ted Ginn. And the worst guy who actually had any production was early Doucette. Okay. But Golden Tate, for some reason, he could trap footballs and tight coverage and still do it consistently and not drop the fuck out of the ball. This, you know, this is a guy that can catch the ball. My issues with Kadarius Tony are that there's three ways that I think he can fuck up. One is that if he doesn't get his legs under control in terms of how he runs routes. His legs can be all over the place and he outruns or his gait outruns his body and he slips on routes. Okay, this is a problem he's got to fix. On top of that, his gait also exceeds his shoulders to the point that he slips when he runs with the football. And then on top of that, he has issues where if you're going to be that out of control running and you take a hit, you could get fucked up for a while and maybe not even have a career. So... Is he a volatile player for where I have him ranked? Absolutely. But where teams will use him in the NFL, I believe he can be very productive in in the way that he's used. So he's clearly a a dope athlete, like a really outstanding athlete. Like that can't be taken away. My issue with him, and so it's more of an analytical issue, is – why couldn't he command any targets or really any any modicum of production until his senior year? Now I've heard the 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 excuse. Well, they you know he wasn't a wide receiver. Well, why not? I mean, he wasn't a running back either. So he just wasn't being used. You know, I mean, he he was sort of a a, a utility player. Well, sure. if he's a utility player, that means that up until the age twenty two season, he wasn't a wide receiver. Must have meant he wasn't one of the best wide receivers on the team. I mean, was he so valuable getting his, you know, 10 catches a year? Or, uh, you, I just don't understand. Like, you know, I, yeah, he just feels like a gadget player to me. 
that isn't a true wide receiver. Now, if he can find some 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 fertile ground there, where you know I I comped him to to Lynn Bowden, where okay. you know it was like, and, and I like Lynn Bowden, and and so I feel like at wide receiver five he's destined to fail. At wide receiver fifteen to twelve to fifteen. Sounds like it sounds like a great stab. Does that make sense? In other words, I, I fear like the Chicago Bears take him at pick 20, kiss his ass goodbye. He's dead. He's never going to be able to. No, you know what I mean? Like he's he's dead. That's never yeah. going to work. If he goes in the third round to like, you know, so, so, I don't know, wherever, you know, just someplace cool where they're like, oh, my God, it's going to be. Holy shit. It's going to be fireworks. They're going to be using him here, there, screen game, flex player like. Well then, then I like them. You know what I mean. Yeah. So I if think it's just use, that. Yeah, if go they, ahead. If, if they, if if we could magically replace Nicole uh, Hardman with Kadarius oh, Tony, sure. we'd be happy. Yes, and, and, and I totally see your point. And we have to remember, like for me, this is my pre-draft, so I'm looking at talent across a wide boundary of things. And so for me, what I have to be able to understand is that when I'm looking at wide receivers, I'm looking at, I'm looking at an open room as opposed to. You know, so I have to account for the possibility of where they can be. Now, the thing that I will say in Tony's favor that I really love that shocked me as a player is that he actually has great footwork. He has some of the best release footwork of any receiver in this class. And I was shocked by that. But the point that you're making, if you're a fantasy player, and to me, fantasy talent evaluation and football talent evaluation have some differences. No doubt. It doesn't mean that they're one's worse than the other. It's just different. It the is difference, different. The difference is this. Like, to me, draft capital is not an indicator of talent. It's an indicator of opportunity. Tony is a guy that in the he's going to have to be a right fit type of dude. But I think there's enough fits out there because of the way that teams spread the field that he's going to get that high-end opportunity. Right. right. I mean – um, he, he, he's, uh, he, Tony just, I mean, I just don't understand, you know, Tylen Wallace and Kadarius Tony, who's the better wide receiver. It's like, well, come on. Of course yeah. it's fucking Tylen Wallace. Now who's the better athlete. Who's going to get drafted first. It's Kadarius Tony. It's not, that's also not close. Yeah. Like, but like Kadarius. So it's kind of like, you know, the, 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 the guy who throws a 98 mile an hour fastball, six foot four, 220 pound pitcher who's 18 years old but can't hit the, you know, can't hit the mitt if you ask them to, he's going to get drafted in the first round because yeah. he throws 98, he's six foot four, he's 18 years old. The 22 year old lefty who throws 88, but can just paint the corners. Yeah. He's not even going to get a contract. Like get yeah. the fuck out of here. And, so and, I get that. And, and, and the point of this is this, is that even though like your point about production, like, I, as a talent of looking at film and looking at just the metrics of how they play on the field, I don't look at production. I just right. don't, I don't do that. Now I understand the reasons why, because yeah. if you're playing the odds and if you're playing and fantasy players like to play the odds, you're yes. playing the odds and that's your style. And it's the safest way to win is to play those odds. Yes, sir. Then, then you, then, then, you know, the lack of production profile is an issue. Yes, now, sir. <laughs> I've made my living going, okay, let's look at the outliers. Let's look at it. Let's look at questions with that. And how do we look at how to go against the odds and do the less conventional thing now? So I always try to say, look, the odds will tell you this, and this is what people, this is what the convention's going to say. And if you want to play it safe, this is how you go. But 
I'm looking at it from these angles. So if my next team's to be stuck out like here like this, and you get that queasy feeling in your stomach because you're worried about, you know, the whole odds playing thing, then you're not going to want to go here with me. Right. And, and I give that kind of advice to people all the time so that they understand that I, I'm that way. And sometimes I miss with players that I'm absolutely positive about. But we all do. Of you know, course. But, yeah, that's, but baked said, in, that's baked into the cake. That's the important part about analysis of what we do is like you want to sometimes you got to tell people your style and you got to go. This is why this is why it's that way. If you're and and so like for me, like the way we disagree, I totally get where you're coming from. And Likewise. I think it makes absolute logical sense why you wouldn't do that. You know, for me, it's just like, well, if I incorporated that into my look, he'd probably be five to 10 spots lower than where he is. Of right course. Now, he's of slightly course. ahead of Tylen Wallace, who I like Wallace better personally, but that's where it is. You know? Yes. No, that makes actually perfect sense. And that's why it's, you know, some people will criticize a different perspective Whereas I lean into it. I'm excited to hear your perspective because it's fun. Well, it also makes me a better, a better player as well, because I also, you know, I'm always, I'm a, I'm a skeptic by nature and I'm always like devil's advocate in my head. Like for for me, if I'm thinking, I know for sure Kadarius Tony is going to be bad. I don't know that for sure at all. That is not my point. My point is that his percentage of, of hit rate based on historical data is low. That's what I say. But Clearly, he's a dope athlete. It was the same thing with Henry Ruggs last year for me. So Henry Ruggs is like, I, I think I've said it, like, if you told me that Henry Ruggs has a chance to be the best player in that draft, of course he does. If you just told me he's the fastest guy ever to live, he, you know, he can jump out of the building, he played at Alabama, and he's drafted first overall, like the first wide receiver overall, that's all the information I need to know that it's possible that he's the best wide receiver ever. But also, I looked at other things like, you know, his breakout age, his dominator, you know, what what type of routes he ran. What, was he able to ever excel and be the alpha at Alabama? All those things were no's. And so, therefore, I couldn't invest in him as a first-round dynasty pick. But right. it wasn't that it, it was like, for sure, he's going to suck. Absolutely not. There's a very – there's a chance that he's dope and I'm wrong. But, right. you know, it's, the, it's playing those odds, like you're saying, and understanding yeah. that – that it's a risky pick, so therefore I don't want to make it in the first round. And I see a much safer player in CD Lamb, obviously, who I think yeah. is definitely better. But you know, and 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 so, but I wouldn't look at someone who thought that Henry Ruggs was going to be great and say you're an idiot. Uh, right. What if they're right? And they're, you know, you know, and so well, it, it makes you know, it makes for good podcasts sometimes when you have the <laughs> lack of nuance takes and you just. And people like other people calling people idiots and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, oh, whatever. That I'm, from, I'm from Boston, so that's all they do is they just have these right. awful takes and they call each other names. But I actually prefer listening to you and, and disagreeing with respect because then we get someplace. And I right. thought that was a lot of fun. Definitely exactly. for sure. So Mr. Wildman has been here for a little while with me here and, uh, you know, just spitting fire, just having so much fun. Unbelievable. We got to get going at some point, Mr. Wildman. You are unbelievable. Of course, he's going to say, call me Matt. But, um, you know, I'm older than him, obviously. <laughs> now I'm only having fun here. <laughs> we got some. We got a lot of gray hair on this fucking pot. That's all I know. I'm hiding, I'm, I'm hiding even more of it than it looks. Yeah, yeah, that's why I wear a hat on these damn pies. I don't want anybody yeah. to know. No, I'm only teasing. But um, but here's here's a prospect that I you know, another prospect that I love, but at his cost and dynasty, I'll have a hard time pulling pulling the trigger. But 
the more I think about it, the more I wonder that I th- I want to frame the question this way. Kyle Pitts is is an absolute by, by the numbers is an absolutely awesome tight end prospect. My 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 thought process is that he is going to perhaps be drafted by a team that plays him more outside, therefore actually playing the quote unquote wide receiver position uh, more than most or maybe almost any tight ends in the league. I mean, Gasecki plays in the slot at like 78%, but ultimately that's still sort of just a, a tight end moved out a little bit uh, standing up. You know I mean? He's, yeah. he's not outside. I really think that Pitts may be able to play outside and, and that, that whomever drafts him will consider that as part of why they're going to draft him in the top five or 10. I guess my question to you is, is did he display that to you in a way that would make that make sense? Yes. Absolutely yeah, right? did. Yeah, he's to me, he's, you know, if you're gonna if they drafted him 15 years ago as a tight end, you'd be like, well, just keep waiting for a couple <laughs> right. of years because you know, I, I publish this every year in the RSP, the top 15 rookie performances by tight ends, you know, in their rookie year in PPR leagues. And, you know, number one on that list has been Mike Ditka since 1961. Okay. And and now there are five players in the past in the past five um, past five years who actually have made this list. You know, Evan Ingram, Rob, Jeremy Shockey. You know, um, Aaron Hernandez. No, Shockey's on there too. Yeah, yes, Shockey's on there. But like, let's see, three players in 2016. You have Hunter Henry. Yep. And in 2017, you have Evan Ingram, who made that list. And then more recently, you had. Gronkowski in 2010, um, Hernandez in 2010, and John Carlson in 2008, you know, and then Shockey 2002. And Shockey was the highest of those because it was Mike Ditka, Keith Jackson, Charlie Young, and Jeremy Shockey are the top four with Ingram round out the top five. The yeah. important part about Ingram is that many people thought Ingram could play wide receiver in this league. And because of that fact, um, you look at a guy like um, Pitts, and Pitts has that ability to be big off the line of scrimmage against smaller guys and win with enough quickness and speed to get separation. And he can break, make those hard breaks like a wide receiver who runs timing routes. And he just toys with linebackers. I mean, his right. pacing with linebackers is ridiculous. He'll just he'll completely pull the string or push the button and just zoom past them and set them up with pacing type of routes. Um, but his catch radius, all of that is good enough that – would you, he's my third overall talent on the yeah. board. Um, so for fantasy, if he gets drafted by a team that decides they want to use him like TJ Hawkinson, then you might want to temper your expectations because right. Hawkinson to me was the best overall tight end in recent years um, uh, that I graded. Um, the same with, you know, but at the same time, if they're going to use him, like a team would use Evan Ingram or Irv Smith in an expanded Irv Smith-like role, you know, the way he should have been used, um, or right. someone that's where they're going to say, he's just a weapon. He's Jimmy Graham who can actually block and, you know, but we can use him on the backside and we're going to split him out a lot and throw him open and do all the things that Jimmy Graham got to do. Then, yeah, he's worth waiting a year, even if you're disappointed year one. But if you play dynasty a little bit more like a dynasty player and a little less like a redraft player um, and say, I'm willing to at least wait one to two years on a guy, he will give you 
the Travis Kelsey like dividends, I think, to his in his career. But he might start earlier than all those guys because of the ability to work outside. Well, when here's the thing: if you're a dynasty player, one thing that has to be factored in is if you fast forward to three years from now, literally three years from today, he'll be 23 years old. And, you know, obviously that makes him 20 right now. And sometimes you say a guy's 20 and they're like, yeah, whatever. But I mean, if you think about it, like we'll be three years into the future right now and he's still just a 23-year-old player. There's 23-year-old guys in this draft class. We just talked about uh, uh, Jacob Harris Harris is 24. Uh, Dwayne Eskridge is 24. So, you know, there's a lot of guys, uh, you know, uh, Najee Harris is 23 years old. So, I mean, you, you got to bake that into the cake a little bit. And I'm starting to, I have a really hard time. Cause I, I, when I watch Kyle Pitts, that's what I, that's the difference I see from him to a guy like Hawkinson Hawkinson. I'm with you, man. He's he, I used to call, I say Hawk is chalk. I mean, because yeah. you want to define tight end in the dictionary. It's like, you just write TJ Hawkinson. Like this dude is because he can block, Hell right? Yes. I mean, yes. you know, you know what I mean. So he can stay on the field in all situations because no matter what you're asking him to do, he can do it. It's like him and Kittle, you know. And yeah. so, 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 but Pitts is a different type of player who could stay on the field because he can play outside. You know, Hawkinson's not going to line up at X. You know, no. I mean, it's you know, it's just not no. where he lines up. I mean, it's just not going to happen. But, I mean, but but Pitts can go inside and block backside for you. Bingo, and and. Now we don't want him to add ten to fifteen pounds, probably, no. but they could probably do that. And he's gonna, and he could. He has enough technique that he could develop into a frontside blocker if they needed to. But we're not. We don't have to travel back into time into nineteen fifty five and let him be that guy, <laughs> you know. So we're all right. That's right. No, absolutely, man. So he's a tantalizing player, and and for that reason, he's going to be draft. He's going to be overdrafted every dynasty league because there's going to be someone who just falls absolutely in love and rightfully so. And so it's going to be tough to get your hands on him as a dynasty player. But, um, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I'm in enough dynasty leagues where I'll, I'll have to find a spot to, to, to take my shot with him because it's just going to be a fun player to, to watch grow again. Well, if, and if know, he falters, if he falters, you're going to be able to buy him low when the impatient dude in your league got actually got a hold of him. You oh. might be able to get them for pennies on the dollar. That will be the best. Which would be fun. But I, I will but be looking forward to that opportunity for sure. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, hey, hey, Matt Waldman, holy smokes. We just we just ran through it all. We could pro- I mean, we were talking before we got on the damn pod. And we were just like, it was like long lost brothers, man. I, I absolutely loved spending time with you. I love listening to you. I love everything about it, man. You were just awesome and so generous with your time. And I think the listeners loved it. I had a lot of uh, a lot of people behind the scenes uh, DMing me, really excited to hear me interview you. Uh, this Sweet. pod has been growing, and and our listenership has been steady and growing. And I'm so grateful for all of that, and I'm grateful for you. And and uh, thank you for sharing everything that you did with me today. I, it's truly an honor to speak with you today. Hey, man, I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. And I do want to answer one reader question that just yeah, excited go. me because I'm a running back wonk. I love running backs. So my favorite '80s running back was yes. not, not Earl Campbell, was William <laughs> Andrews. William Andrews was a hidden stud who Walter Payton once said in Sport Magazine that if there was one player that he would block for in the NFL at that oh. time, it, other than Matt Suey, because Matt Suey <laughs> was his two, teammate, it was William Andrews who literally ran over and knocked out Ronnie Lott on a play. 
and lot brought it on that play too. William Andrews, thousand yards rushing and thousand yards receiving for one of the first backs to do that, or he didn't do that. He had two thousand combined yards rushing receiving. He's one of the first backs to do that before Roger Craig did the thousand thousand. Um, he and then he he tore his ACL and he ended up with nerve damage. And it took him two years to come back, and he was never the same player. But would have been a Hall of Famer at the rate that he was playing. He was a fucking hoss of a player. Love it. Love that. I'm so glad you got to the listener questions. I'm such a moron. I always forget. But let, let, let's just let's just do this one thing. All y'all people listening, go out and uh, follow Matt Waldman at Matt Waldman. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, that's it. At Matt, Matt Waldman. Waldman Sorry, I yeah. messed it up. Yeah, at Matt no. Waldman on Twitter. And go to MattWaldmanRSP.com uh, uh, to uh, to get his um, rookie scouting portfolio, which is just awesome. And you can certainly see that, you know, it, everything is is deeply thought out and you're going to need this information in order to dominate your your league. And uh, so, so, so go follow him on Twitter. Go buy the RSP. And, uh, you know, we'll have him back on this podcast and, and, uh, and he can, he can school me again, but, uh, one last thing. The April's child abuse prevention month. Let's And and so the RSP, one thing RSP has been doing since the Penn state scandal has been donating a percentage of its sales to darkness to light, which is an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children, as well as learning how to address it when it does happen so that, um, parents or community people or people in leadership don't fuck it up even more and further traumatize the kids. Um, this is an organization that Ali Rossman has been a spokesperson for um, in recent years um, that has been doing great work at universities, including Penn State, um, in little leagues, in schools, individual training, whatever you want, kind of training they want to do. And I've been giving up to five thousand dollars. Um, every year since 2011 to the to them, we've already given four thousand dollars as an early start um, because it was Child Abuse Prevention Month in April. We'll probably give another thousand before it's up. It's a great organization. Even if you don't buy the RSP, go to d2l.org and donate to them. It's a great cause. It's a taboo subject. Most people obviously don't feel comfortable talking about. There's a lot of shame involved with it because. Most of the time, the people who've been abused, it's been by someone they know. It's not the stranger going, hey, little kid, you want some candy Come into my van type of thing? Um, you know, so as That's a result right, of man. that, you know, this is a great organization and and they're ranked 100 out of 100 in the score for Charity Navigator. And, and when I first started giving to them, they weren't ranked that high. So they've gotten better as a business running their charity too. So yeah. And that, and that, and that navigate just basically means that most of your money goes to actually helping people as opposed to administrative fees and bullshit. Yes. Lining someone's pocket. So a hundred out of a hundred means your money is getting home and doing what you want it to do. So uh, if that's true, I I endorse it already because any charity that's uh, rated that highly uh, deserves our attention because that means they're doing good work. Please give the, the website again, because yeah, this, yeah. this is an awesome cause. Thank you, please. The, the, the site is called Darkness to Light, and you can find them at d2l.org. Go there and give money right now. Like, honestly, that is that is fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, we're going to have uh, something on the Undroppables, too, for the Hayden Hurst Foundation. So hop on there, and please please uh, donate money, man. Uh, people need your help, and you know it, it, it takes all it of us. It feels good. So, it, it feels, feels good, good man. Just go on there. It's so easy to do nowadays in the digital era. Just give 10 bucks, man. 
Um, it's so easy. Give 10 bucks. If all y'all gave 10 bucks, wait, I have like four or five listeners. That'd be like a 50 bucks. No, I'm joking. But seriously, if every listener on this gave 50 bucks or 10 bucks, we'd make a difference immediately. So just stop what you're doing and go do the right thing. Go give five, 10 bucks to this cause. Thank you so much, Matt Waldman. On behalf of everybody at the Undroppables, on behalf of everybody at the Undrafted, Michael Duncan. Who's great. Man. Woo! Michael Duncan, thank you so Who's much. Great. great job. Everybody else at the, at the Undroppables, thank you so much. Peace out. Peace out.